if you come to the first of Kings, chapter 1, uh, we're going to open our story this evening, this morning. I keep on saying this evening. Of course, it's probably nearer evening in New Zealand, but I must remind myself that I'm still in America. Uh, we're told in the first of Kings, chapter 1, at the very end of the chapter, in verse 53... So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and bowed himself to King Solomon, and Solomon said unto him, Go to thine house. Now, you might not know, brothers and sisters, but that last verse of the first of Kings chapter 1 answers to the first of Chronicles chapter 23 verse 1 when it says, And when David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. And now in chapter 2 of Kings, the first of Kings 2, we're going to have what we believe to be the, the last words of David to his son. And um, in effect, therefore, in between the first of Kings chapter 1 and the first of Kings chapter 2 will lie everything from the first of Chronicles chapter 23 verse 2 right through to the first of Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25. So sandwiched in between 1 Kings 1 and 1 Kings 2 is everything from the first of Chronicles 23 verse 2 to 29 verse 25. And in the first of Chronicles chapter 29 verse 25, it's going to take up again the story of David's death and the 40 years that he reigned over Israel, which is going to answer to the first of Kings chapter 2, chapter two verses 10 and 11, that David dies and has reigned over Israel for 40 years. And it's for that reason, therefore, that most of our studies this week have focused on the Chronicles record, which has expanded out, remember, that last wonderful 12 months of the reign of David. And it's a marvellous thing, is it not, brothers and sisters, that not only was his life revived, but we have these psalms that take us into the mind of the old man as he lived through this amazing final 12 months of his life. So what do we have in the first of Kings chapter 1, therefore? Well, we've got as follows. Verses 1 to 4, the passing of the charge. This is chapter 2, sorry. First of Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the passing of the charge. Then verses 5 to 9, the counsel of a father. And finally in verses 10 and 11, the death of a king. So this is what he says in First of Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son. He'd already been close to death, of course, 12 months before, but this time he really felt that the end was coming. He really was dying, and he knew that the moment was upon him. And so what we've really got, I think, as, as the first of Kings, chapter 2, is going to unfold, brothers and sisters, is David's last will and testament. That's what we've got here. We've got these words of the last personal admonitions and instructions of the dying king which are going to be passed on unto his son. And he says in verse 2, I go the way of all the earth, the way of all the earth, the way of all mankind. It's mentioned in the first of Samuel 17 in verse 46, in the first of Kings chapter 10 verse 24. In the first of Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 23. In Psalm 66 and verse 4, it's that destiny of mortality that no man can ever escape from, brothers and sisters, and 
David knew it was coming upon himself now. And so he says to Solomon in verse 2, I go the way of all flesh. Be thou strong therefore and show thyself a man. And I don't think he meant show himself a man because his father was about to die, but show thyself a man because of the responsibilities of kingship that were about to come upon the young man. Because you see, Solomon's youth constituted one of the chief difficulties of his accession to the throne. Josephus tells us in Antiquities that Solomon was only 14 at this time. Now, whether Josephus is right or wrong, I'm not sure. But what we do know is that, is that David himself says of his son, in the first of Chronicles 29 verse 1, he says, Solomon, my son, is yet young and tender. And Solomon himself will say in the first of Kings chapter 3 and verse 7, I am but a little child. And so here was an exhortation to Solomon that he might show maturity in taking up the responsibilities of kingship and how best that might be done once his father had died. And so now David looks at his son and he says this. You see, these are personal instructions now just to Solomon, his son, before he dies. He's already bidden farewell to the nation as a whole. The great assembly has been closed. But now he wants to talk to this boy of his while he's got opportunity before death comes. And this is what he says, verse 3. I want you to keep the charge of Yahweh thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. So first of all, he reminds Solomon that there is no other basis for wise leadership other than to govern on the basis of divine principles. You've got to know the book, son. And you'll remember that the provision of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 17 was that every king, every king was meant to write out his own copy of the law so that he might understand the principles of kingship and rulership. But I think there's something more than this. It isn't just that he wanted Solomon to understand the book of the law. I think there was something more profound going on in terms of the instruction of David here. I think this is a reference to the idea of the solemn transfer of the charge of the truth from the father to the son. Now come and have a look at this. In your left hand, if you like to get the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 31, but in your right hand, come to the first of Chronicles chapter 28, just for a moment. So first of Chronicles chapter 28 in your right hand, and the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, in your left hand. There's actually a section that we omitted from the story of the speech of David on that day of the great congregation. And uh, we're just going to take up those words now so that we can see this idea of the passing on of the charge. Now, in Deuteronomy, chapter 31, we've got Moses speaking to Joshua. And this is what he says, verse 7. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for thou must go with this people into the land which Yahweh hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And Yahweh, he it is that doth go before thee, he will be with thee, 
He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. And in verse 23 of this chapter in Deuteronomy, we're further told these words when it says, And he gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge. We see that word? A charge. And said, Be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them. And I will be with thee, was the promise of Moses to Joshua. Now have a look at the uh, book of Chronicles, the first of Chronicles, chapter 28. So here now are words that we've seen on an earlier occasion in the last speech of Israel. And in the first of Chronicles 28, he says this in verse 20. Where do you think these words come from, brothers and sisters? And David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for Yahweh Elohim, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of Yahweh. And we realize that the words of David to Solomon in the first of Chronicles 28 and verse 20 is the very charge that Moses gave to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 7 and Verse 23, the passing on of the charge. And now come to the first of Kings chapter 2 in your right hand, but this time in your left hand to the book of Joshua and chapter 1. So Joshua chapter 1 in our left hand and the first of Kings chapter 2 in our right hand. So just as that charge was given by David to Solomon in 1st of Chronicles 28 in the language of Deuteronomy, so now look at these words. In Joshua chapter 1 therefore, and reading from verse 6, the charge was addressed to Joshua in the following way. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong, and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. And now have a look at the first of Kings, chapter 2 and verse 3. And David says to Solomon his son, Keep the charge of Yahweh thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. And we'll find that the language of the charge of David to Solomon in the first of Kings 2 echoes the charge to Joshua again in the book of Joshua chapter 1. And now come to the New Testament record, brothers and sisters, to the book of Timothy. In fact, to the two epistles of Timothy. The epistles of Paul to Timothy. Now, who was Timothy as far as Paul was concerned? And the answer, of course, is that he was his dear son in the faith. His own dear son in the faith. 
And to that young man will, came this, will come the same spirit of the charge from his father, his spiritual father, the Apostle Paul. And so in the first of Timothy chapter 1, we read these words in the 18th verse. First of Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mayest by them mightest war a good warfare. This charge I commit unto thee. And again in chapter 6 of the first of Timothy, the first of Timothy, chapter 6 and verse 20, right at the end of the first epistle, he's going to say this, O Timothy, he says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called. So there was a trust that was given unto Timothy as a sacred charge from the Apostle Paul, the guardianship of the truth, passed on from father to son. And again in the second of Timothy, chapter, chapter 1, we're going to read this in the seventh verse. Second Timothy chapter 1, maybe verse 6 it says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, fear not, neither be dismayed, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so again he's exhorted in that matter. Again in the second of Timothy here and in chapter 1 verse 14. Paul says, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwelleth in us, he says. And again in the second of Timothy chapter 2, and this time in verse 1, and in verse 2, he says, thou therefore my son, be strong, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. And finally, in the second of Timothy, chapter 4 and verse 1, we're going to be told, Second Timothy 4 verse 1 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. And so coming back to the first of Kings, chapter 2, brothers and sisters, we realize that, that what's going on here is the story of what's been happening for successive generations in the truth for many a year now. As David passed on to Solomon the, the charge of the truth, so Moses had charged on to Joshua that same charge, and so Paul would pass on to Timothy, the deposit of the truth, that it might be kept. I think there's a tremendous lesson that's going on here in terms of the last instructions of David, the old man, concerning these things. You see, it tells us how important the truth is and the need for that truth to be faithfully preserved. It implies a solemn duty a solemn duty on the past, on the on the on the on the part of the old, to pass on the charge, and a solemn duty on the part of the young, 
to accept the charge. It's a link from past to future generations. That we don't just arrive and come into the truth as we please, we come into the truth that's been given to us as a charge from the generation that went before us. These are solemn words of responsibility and warning, a sense of the passing on of the heritage of the truth. And, and to all our young people, we would say this, brothers and sisters, and that's this, that we pass on to them the charge and the deposit and the trust of the truth. And we say to them that we are passing it on to their, onto their generation from us, but it is not theirs to change. The heritage of the truth is not theirs to play fast and loose with. The heritage of the truth is not there so that others might remove the ancient landmarks that have held the brotherhood together down through time. No, we pass the truth on to the next generation that they might receive it as a sacred deposit and to realize that they shall now become the guardians of Yahweh's honor in their generation just as we were and have been in ours. And each generation shall become responsible, accountable before God for whether they maintained the charge of the truth. It's a tremendous responsibility and yet a marvelous privilege that we are given this sacred charge, brothers and sisters, into our hands from the generation that has gone before, but with this proviso that it is our duty to pass it onto the generation that shall come. It's not ours to change, but ours to preserve. And ours to preserve faithfully. And if the charge of the truth is ever lost, brothers and sisters, it will be either because the sacredness of that charge has not been understood by those passing it on, or the preciousness of the charge has not been understood by those receiving it. We live in a continuum of the generations of the race, brothers and sisters, a community of the faithful remnant of the woman's seed down through time. And we're only ever part of that story in the chapter of our own lives. And even David, for all his greatness, realized that he was but one stage in that journey of the people of God. And he wanted his son to realize that now that charge would lie upon him. And so he says in the first of Kings, chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Do this, my son, that Yahweh may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to the truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fall thee, saith he, a man of the throne of Israel. And so the continuance of the royal line of David depended on the faithful walk of every generation of that family and the, continu con the continuation of the truth itself depends upon that same principle. And then David said in verse 5, and we've got these rather interesting words in the first of Kings 2, when he warns Solomon concerning Joab the son of Zeruiah, comments favorably upon Barzillai the Gileadite in verse 7 and warns him again concerning Shimei, 
the Benjamite in verse 8. So he warns Solomon against evil men and also about good men. You know, when you first read these words concerning Joab and Shimei and the first of Kings in chapter 2, you think that perhaps David in his old age is moved by the spirit of revenge, a last chance perhaps to get even with Joab and with Shimei. I don't think so, brothers and sisters. I don't think that was David's spirit at all. In fact, you see what he says. First of Kings 2 verse 5. Read carefully what he says concerning Joab. He says, Moreover thou knowest also what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel, unto Abner the son of Ner, and unto Amasa the son of Jetha, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace, and put the blood of war upon his girdle that was about his loins, and on his shoes that were on his feet. And so it was, brothers and sisters, because Joab was the man whose sword always found the fifth rib, was it not? And that sword would go into the rib of those who thought that he was a friend and a companion and the blood literally fell out on the shoes of Joab. But you see this in verse 5. David never holds Joab accountable for his support in the matter of the rebellion of Adonijah. David never says a word about the rebellion of Adonijah and Joab's part in that matter. And you'll notice that he also does not hold Joab accountable for the murder of Absalom, his son. No, the only thing he mentions is the death of Abner and Amasa, two good men in the truth, but not David's own family. David is not moved by the spirit of personal revenge on this occasion. Now I think David was concerned for the matters of the safety and the stability of the kingdom of God, not himself. Those things that might affect the stability of the kingdom were David's concern in these instructions to Solomon. And really, as with Joab verse 5, so very much so with Shimei in verse 8. You see, Shimei had not just cursed David. It wasn't just that he'd cursed David in any personal capacity. He'd cursed the Lord's anointed. He did not have that spirit of respect or integrity. In fact, Shimei was so unstable that today he would kiss the king's hand and tomorrow he would incite a rebellion to lop off the king's head. You can't trust him, says David. That sort of man will be a problem in the kingdom. Now David had failed to deal with both of these men, had he not? He failed to deal with Joab because of political weakness at the time and because of moral paralysis since Joab knew the matter of Bathsheba. And he had not dealt with Shimei because of, of, of a wish to not disturb the circumstances of his return to Jerusalem and also because of the typical magnanimity of David in seeking not to hold grudges but to forgive. Now you see, brothers and sisters, I believe that the death of these men could make very little difference to David personally. It wasn't for himself that he said what he said to Solomon. Now, I think he saw what effect they could have on the kingdom. You see, they represented two different types of people. Shimei, fickle, capricious, dangerous, unrighteous. Joab, ruthless, implacable, determined, unspiritual. 
You see, these are two manifestations of fleshly thinking that would endanger the kingdom and threaten the objectives of building Israel as a holy nation. You've got to see this, my son, says David. You've got to watch that spirit in the ecclesia of God. It will be dangerous to the objectives of building God's people. Whereas on the other side, verse 7, when it says, Show kindness unto the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be of those that eat at thy table. The reason given is, for so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom thy brother. And you see, Barzillai represent those who are supporters of the kingdom. Those whose kindness, whose generosity, and whose fairness would contribute to the well-being of the kingdom, and for that matter, to the encouragement of the king himself, that he might govern righteously. And you see, when you look at these verses, therefore, in the first of Kings 2, from verse 5 all the way down to verse 9, I think we suddenly realize that these are two representative classes of people. He's not just thinking of Joab and Shimei on the one hand and Barzillai on the other. If these are the last words of David, then why is there no mention of Abiathar or Zadok or Benaiah or Nathan or Adonijah or any one of a number of different people in David's life? No, they're representative people. They're representative of two different classes. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, alongside each other. And David, well, David's words in this chapter are, I think, indicative of the counsel and instruction that he gives to his son Solomon at this time, of which these words in the first of Kings 2 are symbolic and representative of what he was teaching his son. Now, that's interesting, because if you come to the book of Proverbs and to the early chapters of the book of Proverbs, do you know that in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, I think we probably have the instruction of David. We're told in the book of Proverbs, it says in Proverbs uh, chapter 1, in the opening section of the opening chapter, it says that these are the Proverbs of Solomon, Proverbs 1 verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. If you come just to the chapter, chapter 9 for a moment, because chapter 9 marks, sorry, chapter 10 verse 1 marks the beginning of the second section of the book of Proverbs. At this time it says, the Proverbs of Solomon. So if these are the Proverbs of Solomon and chapter 1 to 9 is the Proverbs of Solomon, then why are they called two different sections if they're both Proverbs of Solomon? And I think you see that the answer to that is that the Proverbs of the first nine chapters, although they were recorded here by Solomon, they are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David. And I think these were actually David's instructions that he gave to Solomon before he died. Oh, it's true enough that Solomon's recounting them here, and they're in the start of the book of Proverbs, but I think Solomon got these ones from his father. And I'll tell you why I believe that, because if you come to the book of Proverbs in chapter 4, we're told so in Proverbs 4 verse 1. I think this was the instruction of David to Solomon at the end of his life, after the manner of the first of Kings chapter 2. In Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 1 it says... Hear, ye children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. 
for I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For, he says, for, says Solomon, I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. And you know, in the margin of verse 4, against the words, he taught me also, you'll find that it cross-references it to the first of, of Chronicles, chapter 28 and verse 9, and the, the, the words to Solomon of the great assembly given to him by his father David. And when it says in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 3, for I was my father's son tender, that's the very word that David has used in the first of Chronicles 29 verse 1. For Solomon my son is yet tender, young and tender. Oh yes, I think these are the words that Solomon had got from his father. These first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. And I think he got them at the very end of his life. Just before David died. And what is symbolically represented to us in the first of Kings 2 is the last instructions of David concerning two different types of people in the kingdom to be aware of. I think that was encapsulated in the instructions of first of Chronicles 1 to 9, David's private instructions to his son. Now that's interesting, brothers and sisters, because do you know that I think at this very moment of time, he wrote a psalm. <laughs> now you'd never guess that, would you? Now let me show you the psalm, but hold the book of Proverbs. In fact, come back to Proverbs chapter 2 in your right hand and come to the 37th psalm. You see, I think this is when this psalm was written. I think it belongs to the first of Kings and chapter 2. David's last instructions to his son. So let's synchronize the psalm and the Proverbs of David to his son. In Proverbs 2 and verse 8, the proverb says, he keeps the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints. But that's Psalm 37 verse 28. For Yahweh loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints, they are preserved forever. And in Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. But that's Proverbs 37 verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. In Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 22, it says, The wicked shall be cut off from the earth, and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. But that's Psalm 37 verse 38. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together, and the end of the wicked shall be cut off. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5, the proverb says, Trust in Yahweh with all thine heart, and lean not unto thy own understanding. But that's Psalm 37 verse 3, Trust in Yahweh and do good. And again in verse 5, Trust in him, and he shall bring it to pass. 
Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 23, it says, Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. But that's Psalm 37 verse 24, Although he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for Yahweh upholdeth him. And again verse 31, The law of God is in his heart, none of his steps shall slide. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 31, it says, Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. But that's Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. And in Proverbs 3 and verse 33, it says, The curse of Yahweh is in the house of the wicked, but he blesseth the habitation of the just. But that's Psalm 37, verse 22. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, whereas they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. Yes, I think this psalm was written at this moment of time and constitutes the last instructions of David personal to his son. In fact, come and have a look at Psalm 37 then and let's see a couple of, of points of contact that that suggests that this might be so. So when do you think Psalm 37 was written? Well, we're told in the psalm, it says, verse 25, I have been young, and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. And that word old, in verse 25, is the same word in the first of Kings chapter 1 verse 1 when it says David was old and he gat him no heat and it's the same word in the first of Chronicles 23 verse 1 which says and when David was old and full of days he made Solomon his son king and now I am old says Psalm 37 verse, 21, verse 25 yes I think it's written at this time in David's life and you know there's something uniquely special about Psalm 37, and that's this. Have you ever noticed this before, brothers and sisters? Psalm 37 is not a psalm of praise. And Psalm 37 is not a psalm of petition. So if it is neither a psalm of praise nor a psalm of petition, then what is it a psalm of? And the answer is it's a psalm of Proverbs. A psalm of Proverbs. Written in David's old age. And I think they were written for an individual because you see what the record says, Psalm 37 verse 1, fret not thyself because of evildoers neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb you trust in Yahweh and do good so shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed delight thyself in Yahweh and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart commit thy way unto Yahweh and trust in him and he shall bring it to pass these are the individual counsels of instruction and I think the individual was Solomon himself and that these are the proverbs that David wrote especially for his son to give him counsel.
And the psalm, brothers and sisters, is an admission that even in the best of times, the seed of the woman must struggle to maintain the principles of the truth amidst the seed or amidst the influence of the seed of the serpent. The righteous are set among the wicked and must cope with all the trials that that brings upon us in the circumstance of life. And I think, you know, at the end of the days, what the psalm shows is the clarity of old age. David says, in effect, this to his son. My son, he says, I want you to know this above all things. You must know this. At the last, says David, there are only two seeds. There are only two ways. There are only two classes. There are Job's and Shimei's, and there are Barzillai's. And you must understand how to guide the kingdom in the knowledge of those two different classes. Do you know that those are the two key words in Psalm 37, brothers and sisters? The word wicked, verse 10, 12, 14, 16, 17, all the way through the word wicked. We won't go through them now because of lack of time, but the word wicked is used 13 times. Rasha, the Hebrew wicked one. And the opposite of that is the word sodik, sodik, the righteous one, the righteous, used nine times in the psalm. The righteous versus the wicked. That's the whole theme of this psalm. And not only the righteous versus the wicked, but what David wants his son to know is not just that there are two classes, not just there are two ways, but he says to his son, there are two ends to those two classes. And you need to understand the enormous difference between the two. Well, here's the two ends, brothers and sisters, which you can see in the text here. Psalm 37, verse 9. For evildoers, says the record, shall be cut off. Verse 22. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, but they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. Verse 28, at the end of the verse, they are, the, they are preserved forever, the saints, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. At the end of verse 34, the righteous are exalted to inherit the land, but when the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. And lastly, in verse 38, the end of the wicked shall be cut off says David in verse 38. This is the final destiny of the wicked, that they shall be cut out of the purpose of God and cut out of the kingdom by God. But the destiny of the righteous is wonderfully different. So verse 3 of the psalm says, Trust in Yahweh and do thou good, and so thou shalt dwell in the land. Dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Verse 9, evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. Verse 18, Yahweh knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. Verse 22, for such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth. Verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. 
verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. And verse 34 says, wait on Yahweh and keep his way and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. Yes, the wicked are cut off, but the righteous are given eternal inheritance. And in effect, this is the theme and the burden of this psalm of instruction to his son, brothers and sisters. David's final advice in this present life is this, that the wicked often appear to prosper with success, but the secret of the truth and the secret of those in the truth is to soar in mind, says David, to the final purpose of God when all the issues of life, of life are resolved. And if you can see to the end, Solomon, my son, says David, then the faithful will know the certainty of the end of the wicked and the confidence of the future of the righteous in the sovereign purpose of God. Don't ever forget that, says David and govern the kingdom according to that ultimate reality which is to come. In the meantime, the righteous must be known by their way of life, he says, as they manifest to live righteous lives, to fret not, to trust in God, to do good, to delight in God, to commit his way, to trust in God, to rest in God, to cease from anger, to forsake wrath, to depart from evil, to do good, to wait on Yahweh, to keep his way. Oh yes, this psalm will be full of the behavior of the righteous in the kingdom. You need to recognize these two classes, says David, and govern the kingdom wisely. Well, what a marvelous thing that God blessed this man with sufficient recovery of strength in these last 12 months to perform such immense and wonderful labors in the service of the truth. And how grateful we are, brothers and sisters, to have this remarkable record of the last 12 months of an old man who we love so well. And perhaps especially how blessed we are to see how the power of the mind can triumph over the body. I'm sure, brothers and sisters, that as we all gently age towards the kingdom, that becomes a comforting thought, does it not? The power of the mind to triumph over the body and to take us into the very kingdom itself where David's mind was often wont to roam. Or that we could travel with him in mind to that place. And what we have in this remarkable story is this veritable cascade of psalms that poured out of the mind and into the hand of the man of God in these last precious 12 months that we might know them. In fact, brothers and sisters, do you know that I believe that such was the mind of David at this time and such was the beauty and wonder and marvel of the Psalms that he wrote that in the end, Messiah in his time of greatest crisis would find that the Psalms that applied most of all to him in his sufferings on the cross would be drawn from these last 12 months of David's life. And those Psalms, brothers and sisters, are God willing the subject of our exhortation this afternoon.
you'll remember that yesterday we, we uh, left David in the midst of that great congregation praising the name of his God as he had promised to do so in Psalm 22. I will praise thy name in the midst of my brethren in the great congregation. And you'll remember how he had been miraculously revived by God, heard from the very place of the mercy seat. And it was his privilege to gather Israel together into one final and mighty congregation so that there in the midst of all his brethren he might bless the name of Yahweh before them all. And in the 29th chapter, as we're going to start to consider it tonight, uh, this, this morning, uh, we're told in verses 1 to 9 of the 1st of Chronicles 29 of David's call now to the nation, his call to consecration. And um, we just want to draw your attention to one matter only before we, we begin our study proper this morning in the 1st of Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 10. In these first verses, verses 1 to 9, we have David's call to consecration that the nation might join him in the service of, of his God. And uh, just notice what he says. There was a tremendous lesson for Solomon who stood alongside him on this occasion. Because David says in verse 1, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for Yahweh Elohim. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God, the gold, the silver, the brass, the iron, the wood, the stones. Verse 3, moreover, because I've set my affection to the house of God, I have of mine own proper good given to the house. In fact, you see that phrase, mine own proper good, that's the word translated peculiar treasure in Exodus 19, verse 5. Do you remember when it says that God said of Israel that he would be a peculiar treasure unto them? Well, it's the same word here, translated mine own proper good. But you see, the point of the reference in verse 3 is that these were not the treasures of David's kingdom. They were the treasures of his own personal wealth. They came from the king's own personal peculiar treasure. I have of mine own proper good given these things over and above all that I've prepared for the holy house. Verse 4, even 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. And when you actually calculate the numbers, brothers and sisters, you will find that David gives an absolutely stupendous gift out of his own personal resources on this occasion. And then it is that he says at the end of verse 5, and who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto Yahweh? And the point is, that whatever the king might, might ask the people to do, it would be no more and probably far less than what the king had himself done. And Solomon learnt a very, very powerful lesson this day from the voice and from the teaching of the old man who was his father. And the lesson was this, that the most inspiring form of rulership is the power of personal example. 
And David says, of my own resources I have given these things, and who then else is willing to consecrate themselves this day? And the king would ask no more of his people than what he was prepared to do in the spirit of a whole burnt offering for the service of the truth. How could they not respond to the marvellous spirit of the king who stood before them. And so they did, because verse 9 says, Then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly, because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy, because they had responded to the power of his generosity, to the power of his dedication, to the inspiration of his example. If we want to be helpful to one another in the truth, brothers and sisters, and if we want to provide spiritual leadership, then let it be the leadership not of word, but of deed in ecclesial life. And now we open the record in verse 10 of the first of Chronicles chapter 29. Well, of course, it's going to start with David's prayer of dedication. The, the prayer of dedication is going to run from chapter 29, verses, uh, verse 10 to verse 19. And then we're going to have the worship of the congregation in verses 20 to 21, the second coronation of Solomon from verses 22 to 25, and lastly the death of the king in chapter 29, verses 26 to 30. But this prayer of dedication that David will offer on this occasion is itself broken into three distinct sections, and those sections are as follows. In verses 10 to 13, there is praise for Yahweh's supreme kingship. Verses 10 to 13, praise for Yahweh's supreme kingship. And the focus of David from the very beginning will be on the majesty of God over all his nation and over all his people. In verses 14 to 16, there will be confession of Yahweh's sovereign provision. Confession of Yahweh's sovereign provision, as he generously gave for the needs of all his people. And lastly, verses 17 to 19 of the prayer will be petition for Yahweh's personal blessing. Petition for Yahweh's personal blessing. And so now David will open his voice and the, the whole congregation of Israel will hear this last wonderful prayer of the old king. And so he says, verse 10, David blessed Yahweh before all the congregation and David said, Blessed be thou, Yahweh Elohim of Israel, our father, forever and ever, he says, forever and ever. And by the way, the phrase Lord God of Israel is exactly the same phrase he used at the first coronation of Solomon in the first of Kings chapter 1 and verse 48. He used it there and now he will use it again and bind the two episodes together by the use of the covenant name. And you see David's focus, brothers and sisters, he says in verse 11, Thine, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Thine is the kingdom, he says. Thine is the kingdom, verse 11. And David impresses upon the nation the reality of God's supreme kingship. Now, what are they there for on this occasion? They are here assembled in Jerusalem on this day that they might crown Solomon as the king of the nation. And the very first thing David says in his prayer 
is that God is king. Not man, not David, not Solomon, but Almighty God. See, that's the focus that David always had, wasn't it? He knew that whatever responsibilities he had in the nation, that he did them, he performed them, he fulfilled them on behalf of the true king. And many of you will probably know, brothers and sisters, that this prayer, this wondrous prayer of David, this last prayer of David before all his people would become the basis of the Lord's prayer in the Gospels, would it not? I wonder if we've seen the fullness of how that works its way through. If you hold your hands in the first of Chronicles chapter 29 and in your right hand come to the Gospel of Matthew and to the story of the Lord's Prayer as it is given to us in Matthew chapter 6. And just notice how wonderfully close the correspondence is that clearly the Lord modelled his prayer on the words of David on this occasion as he stood before the assembly. So you've got your hand in Matthew 6 and in the first of Chronicles chapter 29. So the Lord opens his prayer by saying this, in Matthew 6 verse 9, After this manner therefore pray, he says Christ, our Father. But that's the first of Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 10. Blessed be thou, Yahweh Elohim of Israel, our Father, says David. And then the Lord says in verse 9 of Matthew 6, Hallowed be thy name. But that's the first of Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 13, is it not? Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. First of Chronicles 29 verse 13. And then Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in earth as in heaven. But that's the first of Chronicles 29 verse 11, in the middle of the verse when it says, For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. In both the heaven and the earth all things are of God, and if all things are of God in both heaven and earth, then the day will come when God's will shall be done on earth just as it is in heaven, because it's all of God, both things in heaven and things in earth. And then the Lord says in Matthew 6 and verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. And normally, I think we perhaps stress the words daily bread, that daily the Father provides, and so he does. But, but it just, as, just as truly could be emphasised, give, give us this day our daily bread. But that's the spirit of, of the first of Chronicles 29, verses 14 and 15, when, when David says, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee, for we are strangers before thee and soldiers. All things come of thee. God is the provider of all things. And when, when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, it's an acknowledgement that that bread comes from the Father 
who owns and possesses and has all things which he might provide. As verse 12 of Chronicles says, it is in thine hand to make great and to give, to give strength unto all. And then Jesus said in verse 13 of Matthew 6, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's going to become the first of Chronicles, chapter 29 and verse 18, when later on David is going to say, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people. And, and God willing, when we come to that verse, we'll show that there was a particular evil that David wanted to keep the nation from, and that evil that they might be delivered from with the strength of the Father was the evil for which Christ prayed for deliverance also. And then Jesus says in verse 13 of Matthew 6, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. But that's First of Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, isn't it? When at the end of the verse it says, Thine is the kingdom, O Yahweh. And at the beginning of the verse it says, Thine, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory. First of Chronicles 29, verse 11. And lastly, Jesus says, All these things belong to the Father, verse 13. Forever, he says. But that's the first of Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 10. Blessed be thou, Yahweh Elohim of Israel, our Father, forever and ever, says David in his prayer. Oh, yes, brothers and sisters, the whole of the Lord's Prayer was modelled on the prayer of David in the first of Chronicles, chapter 29. And, and no finer salute could the Lord give, brothers and sisters, could he, than when modelling his prayer to base it upon the devotion of this God-centred man who stood before his congregation and offered this wonderful prayer in the first of Chronicles, in chapter 29. And so the record goes on to say in verse 13, reading, reading perhaps verses 11 12 and 13, and, and maybe if we just read this section, you'll see why it was that the Lord was so drawn to this prayer as the model that he would use. Look at the focus of David's prayer, the focus of David's mind. Verse 11, Thine, O Yahweh, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Can you just see the spirit of God manifestation that pervades David's prayer? Absolutely and totally, is it not? You see, the focus is not on David, it's not on his son, it's not on the kingdom, it's not even on the house that is to be built, it's on God himself. 
through and through, thy, thee, thou, thine. That's David's focus. All is of God, and all is to God. And I think that's why the Lord modelled his prayer on David's. Because it was utterly God-centred and not upon man. And so he says, verse 14, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own we have given thee. For we are strangers, he says, before thee, strangers and sojourners as were all our fathers. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that phrase comes from Psalm 39, which we might just go and look at. It's not a psalm of David's old age. It's not a psalm of David's old age. But um, the thing is that it was very appropriate in the circumstances that David should use this psalm, written on an earlier occasion, but Nevertheless, highly appropriate in the circumstances of the time. Psalm 39. We are strangers and sojourners before thee, he says. Now, in Psalm 39, the particular verse that, that uh, David's quoting from in terms of referring to his own prayer is verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. But just look at the spirit of Psalm 39 and see how appropriate it was to David's thoughts in the first of Chronicles 29. Verse 4. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an hand breadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Verse 7, And now, Yahweh, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Verse 13, O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Oh yes, I can just imagine David thinking about those earlier words that he had written as he is about to pass off the scene at this time. And isn't it a remarkable thing, coming back to the first of Chronicles 29, that here is the king, the king, brothers and sisters, who commands all the royal substance a man of wealth, a man who has everything he could possibly desire in terms of the authority and majesty of the kingdom. And yet this man, the king, says in verse 15, we are strangers and sojourners before. We've got no rights to the resources of life or the resources of the earth. We've got no claim to the, even the fruits of the land. In fact, says David, verse 15, we haven't even got any claim on life itself because he says... Our days on the earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding. No hope, as the Hebrew means, no hope of a continuance of life. We have a claim upon nothing, says David. We're just strangers and sojourners on the pilgrimage of life. And as he says in verse 16, O Yahweh our God, all this 
All this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand, and all is thine own. And we need to remember that, do we not, brothers and sisters, is that whatever we present to the Father is only the return of what he's already blessed us with. Sometimes we imagine that we've given great things to the truth, our time, our energy, our resources, our money, our talents, our commitments, and we forget that whatever we've given is only what the Father had blessed us to begin with. We're only returning what was already God's. And to give to him, therefore, is an acknowledgement of that reality in life, that we're only returning his own. What a marvellous spirit David had, brothers and sisters. And so he says, verse 17, he says, I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. And as for me and the uprightness of my heart, I've willingly offered all these things, and now I've seen with joy thy people that, 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 that these are present here do also offer willingly unto thee. And like king, like people, they were bound together now in the spirit of the truth. And by the way, the key word of this section is the word heart. It's used twice in verse 17, it's used twice in verse 18, and again once in verse 19. The right heart, the right attitude before God, all that God might make sure that we have a right heart. You notice in the middle of verse 18, by the way, it says, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people. It was that willingness of spirit that they now shared with the king. And I can just imagine David with uplifted hands saying, oh God, keep that spirit forever that's in their heart right now. Just keep it there. Might this spirit of dedication, which I see this day, be preserved forever, if that were only possible, says David. But do you know where that expression comes from? The imagination of the thoughts of the heart. That's Genesis 6, isn't it? Verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what David was praying for here was, was he understood, you see, that by nature the thoughts of our heart are earthly and evil and the only power that can overcome that is the power of prayer and the transforming efficacy of the word washing our minds. Remember that marvellous statement by Brother John Carter when once he said, the mind insensibly is affected by the stream of thought passing through it. It is desirable, therefore, to keep the stream as pure as possible. And David prays that it might be so. Or, he says, keep this forever, that the imagination of the hearts of my people might have that spirit of dedication that they show this day. In fact, you see what he says at the end of that verse, verse 18. Prepare their hearts unto thee. See that word prepare? That's the word that's been used all through these chapters, the chapters of David's last year. David prepared gold. David prepared silver. David prepared stones. David prepared workmen. David prepared courses. But David couldn't prepare hearts, brothers and sisters. Only God could prepare hearts. And so it is the, the prayer of David that 
Almighty God might at least prepare the hearts of the people for the great things that were to follow. And so he says, verse 19, not just the hearts of the people, but also the heart of my son, that he might have that perfect heart to fulfill the commandments that are laid upon him. And so in verses 20 and 21, the congregation blessed God and worshipped God and sacrificed, uh, as it says in verse 21, they, in fact it says they offered the offerings on the morrow after that day. So when David's prayer was finished, the assembly was dismissed for the evening and they reconvened the following day that they might offer the sacrifices that they offered. And verse 22 says, They did eat and drink before Yahweh on that day with great gladness, and they made Solomon the son of David king the second time. Just hold your hand in chapter 29 and come back to chapter 23 for a moment, because here then is the first and the second anointings of, David, of Solomon. The first and the second anointings of Solomon. It says this, you see, in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 1. So when David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. That's the first anointing. That's the anointing of the first of Kings, chapter 1. Now, let me just read that verse again with one subtle, slight, significant change of emphasis. So when David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king. Because you see, at the first anointing, it was under the instruction of David, wasn't it? Call me, call me Zadok, call me Nathan, go anoint Solomon to be king. He made Solomon king. Ah, but that's not what's going to happen in chapter 29. You see what it says, First of Chronicles 29 and verse 22, And they did eat and drink before Yahweh on that day with great gladness, and they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time. And you see, the force of the First of Chronicles 29 and verse 22 is that this time, the anointing of Solomon is by the public consent and the public approval of the people. The first anointing was hurried and private. This second one is the formal investiture of the king before the whole nation that they might approve of him and in the presence and with the cognizance of the old king. And so it's the nation themselves that are bound into this coronation of Solomon on this day that they might support the new king whom in fact Almighty God had chosen. And you know, brothers and sisters, I, I believe that probably at this particular time, the, what's recorded in the second of Samuel 23 as the last words of David were probably written, I think, on this occasion. If you come to the second of Samuel chapter 23, we're told this in the first verse. And I think that this was probably the moment that this occurred. On this day, the second day of the great congregation in the first of Chronicles 29, when they made Solomon the king and crowned him over Israel, I wonder whether this was the moment when David wrote the last words recorded of him in 2 Samuel 23 verse 1. Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, the spirit of Yahweh spake by me, 
His word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me and said, and I'm reading now from Brother Thomas's translation of the text. There shall be a ruler over mankind, a just one, ruling in the fear of God. And as the brightness of morning he shall arise, the sun of an unclouded dawn shining forth after rain. And David's mind now moves ahead. This is not the story of the crowning of Solomon. Oh no, this is the coronation of Messiah to come. But I think it was prompted, you see, by the coronation of his son. That on that day, David's mind soared towards the kingdom and to the day when Messiah himself would come as the king. So when he says in verse 5 of 2 Samuel 23, although my house be not so with God, well, let me read you Rotterdam's translation of that verse. When not so was my house with God, then a covenant age abiding he appointed me, ordered in all things and guarded. Now that it is all my salvation and desire, Will he not make it shoot forth? Or as Green says, will he not make it grow? Or as RSV says, will he not cause it to prosper? And I don't think that verse 5 of the 2nd of Samuel 23 is an expression of David's doubt, brothers and sisters. It's an expression of his confidence. And the thing that gave him confidence in Messiah's reign to come is that he saw Solomon crowned. Yes, yes, he shall do this, says David. Messiah shall come this glorious king who shall shine like the sun over his people. And he saw all of that in spirit and in type as he watched the crown being placed upon the son, upon the son of his love, Solomon, who'd been anointed that day. And I think perhaps that the circumstances of that moment gave rise to these words that are described after all as the last words of David the son of Jesse in the second of Samuel chapter 23. And he didn't just write the words of 2 Samuel 23 on that day. No, I think he wrote a psalm as well. And that psalm must be, do you not think, the 72nd psalm? So come to the first of Chronicles chapter 29 in your left hand and come and have a look at Psalm 72 because this surely, brothers and sisters, must have been the day that brought into being the marvellous words of Psalm 72. It, it is indeed so. So Psalm 72 in our right hand and the first of Chronicles chapter 29 in our left hand. So let's just trace the spirit of the psalm in the words of Chronicles as David stood before his people on this occasion. So in the first of Chronicles 29 and verse 10, it says, David said, Blessed be thou, Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Did I say second Chronicles? First of Chronicles 29, verse 10. Blessed be thou, Yahweh Elohim of Israel. But that's Psalm 72, verse 18. Blessed be Yahweh Elohim, the God of Israel. In the first of Chronicles 29 and verse 13, it says, Now therefore, our God, 
we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But that's Psalm 72 verse 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever, says David in the psalm. In the first of Chronicles, chapter 29, and verse 22, it says that they did eat and drink before Yahweh on that day with great gladness, and they made Solomon the son of David the second time. Now, although it doesn't say this in the record, I'm sure that this happened on this occasion. Do you remember how that on the occasion of the first anointing of Solomon in the first of Kings, chapter 1, verse 34 and verse 39, David says this, that when you anoint Solomon, the people were to say something. Can anyone remember what they were to say? What were the people to say when Solomon was anointed as king? They were to say, sorry, God save the king. Or as the Hebrew means literally, let the king live. In other words, it's the, it's the cry of the people at the coronation of the king. You see, let the king live. Long live the king. It's the prayer of the people on the appointment of a new king that God will grant him length of days and stability of government. Long live the king, they cried in the first of Kings, chapter 1, verse 34 and verse 39. And when it says in first of Chronicles 29, verse 22, they made Solomon the son of David king the second time, I'm sure that that same cry rang out from the people, long live the king. But that's Psalm 72 and verse 15 which says, and he shall live. But Rotterham's translation says of the psalm, let him live then. The RSV says, long may he live. It's the coronation cry of the people on the day the king is crowned. You'll notice in First Chronicles 29 and verse 24 it says, and all the princes and the mighty men and all the sons likewise of King David submitted themselves under Solomon. Verse 23 says they obeyed him, and verse 24 says they submitted themselves un under him. So when Solomon is crowned, everyone, as it were, shows obeisance and obedience and submission to the man who now stands crowned as king before them. But that's the spirit of Psalm 72, verses 9 to 11 which says of that king that they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, his enemies shall lick the dust, the kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall bring presents, the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts, yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. And the submission of the nation before Solomon is taken up in the psalm and the obeisance of the people that bow before the king of the psalm. In 1st of Chronicles 29, verse 26, it says, Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. But that's Psalm 72, verse 20, is it not? The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You know, he hasn't been called the son of Jesse for a long, long time, David, and all of a sudden, three passages come together in juxtaposition at this moment of time. The first of Chronicles 29 and verse 26, thus David the son of Jesse reigned. 
The second of Samuel chapter 23 verse 1, these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said. And now Psalm 72 verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And well, might that be the case, brothers and sisters. And just one more connection. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 19, do you see what David said on the occasion of this prayer? He says, give unto Solomon my son a perfect heart to keep thy commandments and thy testimonies and thy statutes. Give my son the heart to keep thy commandments. Well, that's Psalm 72 verse 1, isn't it? Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. Do you know, brothers and sisters, I wonder whether perhaps David did in fact write this psalm in order to recite it before the nation on the day of, of Solomon's anointing. And he stood up, the old man, and he said, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And of course, that was a unique thing on that day as far as Solomon was concerned. He was at once the king and the king's son. Because the old king was still there on that day and Solomon was anointed in the presence of his father, king and king's son. That uniquely was Solomon's position on the day that this psalm was perhaps recited. In fact, you know that in the Jewish Targum, it says in verse 1, it adds the word, give the king, adds the word, Messiah, Give the king Messiah thy judgments, O God. And so it is, because whatever the psalm began as, perhaps it began, in fact, I'm sure it began in verse 1, David thinking of Solomon. Give the king thy judgments, O God. But by the time he comes to verse 17 of this psalm, his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. David's gone well beyond Solomon, has he not? To Messiah himself. In fact, what he's done is he's quoted the promise to Abraham. All in him shall all nations of the earth be blessed. This is the seed of Abraham, the Messiah king which is to come. It's a marvellous thing, brothers and sisters. And so this man, the man of the psalm, has both, both the qualities that are required in kingship. He's a man of righteousness and truth. Verse 1, give the king thy judgments and thy righteousness. Verse 2, he shall judge thy people with righteousness. Verse 3, the little hills shall bring righteousness. And yet this same man, who's a man of righteousness and truth in verses 1 to 3, is a man of wondrous compassion, verses 12 and 13 and 14. He shall deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight." A man of truth and a man of compassion, all at one and the same time, is the king of this psalm, brothers and sisters. In him, mercy and truth meet together. Under him the righteous shall flourish, and the oppressors shall be broken. And you know, I can just see, brothers and sisters, on that day as David stood before his people, he felt absolutely secure the nation were at one with him in heart and soul. They shared with him his willing spirit of dedication. By public acclaim, they had shown that they accepted the crowning of Solomon. But when, 
when David wrote this psalm, his mind went beyond his son, as he was so oft wont to do, and thought about Messiah, which was for to come. And I can just see on that day, brothers and sisters, two men standing side by side, a young man and an old man. The young man smiling nervously and waving a little hesitantly for the first time as king to the assembled multitudes of Israel. And the public acclamations ringing all about as the, as the, as the nation roared with approval the appointment of this young man who would lead them forth from this time. And as those cries and shouts of joy rang around Jerusalem that day, the old man's mind had gone. Gone into the heavens. Gone into the kingdom. Gone into the time of the reign of Messiah. He never heard a thing, brothers and sisters. David's mind had triumphed yet again over his body and had exalted him into the contemplation of the reign of Messiah himself. And the old man's mind soared him there on eagle's wings to think upon heavenly things. Oh yes, I think he wrote this psalm on that day, don't you think? And if David could have fallen on sleep that day, he would have been of all men most happy. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, he said. There was nothing more he wanted to say, nothing more he needed to say. But there was one more thing he needed to do. In fact, it was vital that there be one last act that he performed before he did die. And what that was, brothers and sisters, we shall look at very closely tomorrow. This morning then we come to the uh, book of Chronicles again, the first of Chronicles, and this time to the 28th chapter. You'll remember that in our study yesterday we left David marvellously revived by the fresh oil of God's anointing so that his physical capacity was restored and that in that renewal of his powers we saw him busy organising the, the entire system of temple worship that would focus in and around the house of God. 
and that he managed to accomplish those tasks with a fervor and a passion and an enthusiasm that must have even impressed Solomon, who came along behind his father, struggling to cope with the immensity of what his father was involved in at that time. And so that's really, that embraced the whole of the first of Chronicles 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27. And now in chapter 28 and verse 1, we learn of another remarkable moment in the king's life where the record says, and I'm reading from the heading over the top of the page, it talks about the great assembly. And that's what this chapter and chapter 29 is going to go on to describe in detail for us, the great assembly, the last mighty assembling of all the congregation of the nation that they might hear the words of the old king. And this mighty gathering of these two chapters, I believe, was going to become the crowning event in the life of the old man. They're all there together, says chapter 28 and verse 1. It says, David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes, the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, the captains over the thousands, the captains over the hundreds, the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons, the officers, the mighty men, all the valiant men, they've all come to Jerusalem on this occasion. And he has gathered them, brothers and sisters, at least those mentioned in verse 1, which by the way are all the ones mentioned in the previous chapters, the officers and the princes and the captains, but he's gathered them that they might learn the purpose and service, uh, the, the purpose and service to which they are called. They already knew what their duties would be, but David wants them to know why they're going to do what they're going to do in the service of the house of God. And it wasn't just the captains and the princes that are, that are gathered on this occasion. No, it's the whole congregation of Israel. In fact, we're told that. You see what it says in, in chapter 28 and verse 8. It says, Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the congregation of the Lord. In the sight of all Israel, the congregation of the Lord himself. And again in chapter 29 and verse 1. Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation. And again in verse 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And again in verse 20 of 1 Chronicles 29. And David said to all the congregation, Now bless Yahweh your God and all the congregation blessed the God of their fathers. Oh yes, this is all Israel gathered on this occasion. So truly when it says at the heading of the first of Chronicles 28 that it is the great assembly, well it was. In fact, I think because of David's illness, there might not have been such an, a, there might not have been such a national assembly for some period of time going back into David's illness when he was sequestered within the confines of his own dwelling. And, and you can just imagine the excitement that must have rippled out across the nation when the, when the instructions of verse 1 came issuing forth to all Israel and every place that they must assemble in Jerusalem for this last mighty gathering. Why are we being called? There's to be an assembly in Jerusalem. For what purpose? The king is to speak to us. The king, the old man, 
the old one that sits upon his bed and cannot move. Yes, the king David himself is going to address the nation. And you can just imagine the excitement that must have been caused as they all assembled on this occasion to Jerusalem. Now, can you just sense the scene, brothers and sisters, of 1st of Chronicles 28, verse 2? Once they were all there. And the record says, Then David, the king, stood up upon his feet and addressed the nation. Why would the record tell us that, do you think? Why would the record need to tell us that the king stood upon his feet? Well, you see, because he'd been so near death that he could not even rise from his bed, and now he stands up upon his feet for this one last great effort in front of the nations. You know that there is a very famous word in the New Testament, only found in the New Testament, not just, because, not just in the Greek but also in the English, it's the word anastasis. It's the word for resurrection. Of course, you know what anastasis means. It means the standing up of dead ones. And that's just what's happened to David, isn't it, on this occasion. A man who virtually was at the dust of death, prostrate upon his bed, who now has stood up again. It's like a resurrection, you see. And in this final supreme effort, the mind had triumphed and God had revived him for this last great work, this final farewell to the nation. Do you know, brothers and sisters, they would probably never hear David again. This would be the last time he would ever address them. And I just think that in this one brief, poignant phrase that we have all the pathos and drama of that moment of time, when the record tells us that David stood up upon his feet and a dead man raised to life addressed the nation. And you see the very first thing he said, verse 2, Hear me, he says, my brethren. Oh, do you know that that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17? You remember when the book of the law said that if they were to appoint a king over themselves, it says that it shall be he whom Yahweh thy God shall choose, but it must be, said Deuteronomy 17 verse 15, one from among thy brethren whom thou shalt appoint. And you see, David had that marvellous spirit of humility. He says he's always one of them, you see. The king was not above them. The king was not beyond them. My brethren, he says. You see, David knew how to bind his people unto himself. He had that marvellous spirit of humility by which he counted them himself as being at one with his people. And so he says, verse 2, As for me, I had in mine heart to build an house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh and for the footstool of our God and had made ready for the building... But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war, and hast shed blood. Howbeit Yahweh Elohim of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler, and of the house of Judah the house of my father, 
And among the sons of my father, he liked me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for Yahweh hath given me many sons, he hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. And this focus now on the choosing of Solomon by God is going to become a key idea in David's speech that will follow. You see, it's his responsibility this day to establish the choosing of Solomon. In fact, it says it three times, do you know, in this chapter. In verse 5, Solomon is chosen to sit upon the throne. He has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom. In verse 6, it says that Solomon is chosen to be the son of God. I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. And in verse 10, we will find that Solomon is chosen to build the house. So three times he says, look, Solomon, my son, is the chosen one. He's chosen to be the man on the throne. He's chosen to be the son of God. He's chosen to be the builder of the house on God's behalf. And here in this verse, verse 5, Solomon is being deliberately and publicly confirmed as the rightful heir to the throne by the divine revelation. After all, says David, it's not I that have chosen, it's God. This is God's choice. You see, when Solomon had first been anointed in the first of Kings chapter 1, the king was hidden in his bedchamber. And there could have been those who thought when Solomon was taken to Gihon and anointed with holy oil, there might have been some that thought, well, is, David's re is David really in agreement with this? Is this the conniving of Zadok and Nathan and Benaiah and others? How do we know that this anointing of Solomon is the choice of David himself? And now David puts the matter beyond all doubt. He says, of all the sons that God has given me, he has chosen Solomon. Not just me, but God himself. You hear it by my voice, says David. And it's not just that God has chosen him, but he's chosen him to rule over the kingdom. And it's not my kingdom, says David, verse 5. It's God's kingdom. It's the kingdom of God that he rules over. And now he will expound that in a little more detail. So in verse 6 he says, He said, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as at this day. And of course, if we're reading carefully, brothers and sisters, we will realize at once that the language of verse 6 and verse 7 is all the language of the promise of God made to David. It's the language of the Davidic covenant. He shall build a house, verse 6. I will be his father and he shall be my son, verse 6. I will establish his kingdom forever, verse 7. So you see, what David is doing here is he is expounding the terms of the Davidic covenant and making a specific application of them to Solomon. And I think that David saw in his son the preliminary and earnest fulfillment of the promise. And yet even though David's desire was settled on Solomon, I think he always understood that he wasn't the fullness of the promise. Or no, David knew that the fullness of the promise would rest with Messiah himself. And I'll tell you why we know that. Because these are the terms of the Davidic covenant. 
I'm reading from the first of Chronicles 17, which you don't need to turn up, but I'm quoting from verse 14. And there the promise was, But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. Now, I don't know if you realize the force of those words, but the key to those words of the Davidic promise, I'll read them again, I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. The key to those words, brothers and sisters of the covenant, is that they are entirely unconditional. There's no ifs or buts or maybes. It shall be done. And it shall be done forevermore. That's the promise concerning Messiah. Ah, but that's not what David says in the first of Chronicles 28. Did you notice? One crucial word. First of Chronicles 28 verse 7 says, Moreover, I will establish Solomon's kingdom forever if he be constant to do my commandments. Ah, there's a crucial if you see. You see, Solomon's not the final fulfillment of the promise and David knows that. Now, anything, any blessing that comes Solomon's way is conditional upon his obedience to the truth, if he is constant to do my commandments. And again in verse 9, you see in the middle of the verse that David is going to say concerning his son, if thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. And so whilst David sees a preliminary fulfillment here, he realizes that Messiah is yet to come and that Messiah is not Solomon, his son. And so in verse 8 of the first of Chronicles 28, he calls upon God now to witness to the words that he will now offer to his people. Now therefore in the sight of all Israel, in the congregation of Yahweh, and in the audience of our God, he says, and now he turns to the people, Keep and seek all the commandments of Yahweh your God that ye may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance of your children after you forever. Do you know, when an old man stands to deliver his valedictory oration, he says the things that he counts to be the most important. This was David's last chance to say anything to his people. And when you've got your last chance, brothers and sisters, you say what you think is the most important of all. And David stresses to Israel this. He says, I call on the audience of God, he says, to witness to you. And then he says one thing. This is the greatest thing, says David. You keep his commandments, he says. And you do that so that the inheritance of the truth might be passed on to your children, verse 8. Or that's the thing, most of all, that David wanted them to understand. And, and just, as he said, just as he had ignore, exhorted the nation to faithful obedience, so now in verse 9, he turns and he fixes his eye upon his son. He looks Solomon straight in the eye and he says, And thou, Solomon my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart. You do that, he says to Solomon, in front of all the people. Do you know, that's the great objective of our life and the truth for anyone who appearance, verse 9. Trying to develop within our children the experience of the relationship that we have had with our God. Know thou the God of thy father, 
And our great responsibility as parents is to teach them the passion for the truth that we feel so that they might know the God whom we serve. And David desperately wished this to be the case for the son who stood nearby, full of promise, but untested as yet. Solomon, my son, he says, know thou the God of thy father. And then in verse 11, in the first of Chronicles 28, David is now going to talk about something very, very special, the greatest gift he could give his son, and the gift was this. Now, Brother Matthew has mentioned this in one of his earlier studies. Verse 11 says, Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch. You see, not only had David been blessed with the revelation of the mountain of the house and the place of the temple on Mount Moriah, but he was also given by inspiration the entire plan of that house and the system of courses that would keep the service of the house. And so the word pattern becomes the key word in this section. In fact, right through from verses 11 to 19. You see it here, verse 11. David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch. And then in verse 12... It says, and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit. And then in verse 18 it says, and for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight, and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim. And then again in verse 19 it says, all this says David, Yahweh made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of the pattern. Now hold your hand in the first of Chronicles and come back for a moment to the um, book of Exodus chapter 25 where this idea and in fact this same word is to be found because clearly there is a parallel here between the experience of David and the experience of Moses. And we're told this in Exodus 25 and we're going to read verses 8 and 9 and verse 40. Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9 and 40. And so it says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And look thou, verse 40, that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. So it's the same word. So you see, every aspect of the tabernacle pattern was given to Moses by revelation. And what we're being told now in the book of Chronicles, chapter 28, is that the pattern for the temple was vouchsafed to David. So by the way, all the matters of administration that we saw in our study yesterday in the organization of the singers and the priests and the doorkeepers and where they would stand and how they might sing and how they might offer offerings wasn't just David's own thoughts. Oh no, he'd received all this by the inspiration of God. It wasn't David's own view of what a good temple ought to look like. It was God's pattern. 
And in fact, you see what it says in the first of Chronicles 28. What we've got is this. Verses 11 and 12 is the pattern of the temple buildings. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 13 of first of Chronicles 28 is the pattern of the temple courses. And verses 14 to 19 is the pattern of the temple instruments. So all the arrangements that will follow in this matter are those things that David has received by the revelation of God. And he obviously received it in such a way, as verse 19 says, brothers and sisters, that he might write it down. It says in verse 19, All this, says David, Yahweh made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. As Rodaham says, the whole in writing from the hand of Yahweh upon me to give understanding all the works of this pattern. He wrote it down, brothers and sisters. He was given it in such a way that he could write it down. Do you know, I think there's something really wonderful about this story in the first of Chronicles 28. Do you remember a man who yearned to go into the land of promise and the voice of God said unto him, Thou shalt not go over. but I will show it thee with thine eyes. And an old man who could not enter into the land was given the privilege of seeing it by the power of the Spirit upon him. And here now is another old man, and God says, Thou shalt not build the house, but I will show it thee with thine eyes. You know, that's one of the most wondrously merciful things that God could have done. Do you not think to David, who so desperately wanted to build the house, David, God said, you can't, but I'll show it thee. I'll give you all the pattern, every little detail. You'll see it all, David. Oh, and by the way, brothers and sisters, if that's the case, and after the manner of Moses, then where and how do you think that David might have received the pattern? Well, Moses received the pattern on the mount. And to David has been given the revelation that Mount Moriah is the place where the house of God shall be. And I think that probably on Mount Moriah, David was given the pattern of the house. In fact, if you come to the second of Chronicles, chapter 3, just for a moment, it's one of these digressions that we actually don't have time to look at and yet do not wish to omit. In the second of Chronicles, chapter 3 and verse 1, it says this. What do you make of this, brothers and sisters? Verse 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. But did you notice in that text that the, word, the words, the Lord in the middle of the verse, are in italics. They're not there. And the margin gives a different reference as to the pointing of the Hebrew. And if we read the verse with the marginal notation added, then the verse reads like this, does it not? Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, which was seen of David his father, in the place that David had prepared. 
in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And I wonder whether that verse is telling us not just that David had seen an angel in that place, but he'd seen the house of God in that place. Because this is where the pattern had been vouchsafed unto him. Well, brothers and sisters, coming back to the first of Chronicles, chapter 28. No wonder then, having been given that pattern by inspiration, no wonder he would say to his son in the last two verses of this chapter, verses 20 and 21, how important it was for Solomon to not only begin the work, but to finish all the work of the house, and to exhort him in verse 21 that the whole nation, the priests and the Levites and everyone there would be willing to support him so that that labour of building the house might be finished to the glory of God. It was a wonderful thing. And you know, brothers and sisters, I believe that at this time in David's life, at the moment of standing up to exhort the people in the matter of the pattern of the house and the things that ought to be done, I think David wrote a psalm (laughs) that takes us into the heart and mind of the old man at this precise moment of time. Now just stop and think about this for a moment. Think about the two sides of David's experience at this time. To begin with, he's on his bed, as good as a dead man, all heat gone, bereft of all his powers, effectively despised by the nation who considered him to be under the sentence of death because of his own sins, rejected by his own family, and all of a sudden, there was this remarkable and dramatic change that led to this man being revived and stood up upon his feet and the gathering of the great assembly and congregation of Israel and this burst of activity that other things might be done for the building of the house of God. Aren't they the two sides to the drama of David at this moment? Well, these are the very two sides of Psalm... Oh, now what Psalm do you think it might be? Well, Psalm 22 one of the most famous psalms of all. So hold your hand in the first of Chronicles chapter 28 and come now to the 22nd psalm and let's see if we can find the experience of the nation and the experience more particularly of David at this time. Now let me show you how the psalm divides. Verse 1 starts with the words, My God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? And of course, the psalm opens with a man in desperate straits before his God, crying out for help because of the weariness of his powers and because of the trials that come upon him. And yet the remarkable thing about Psalm 22 is this. Come and have a look at verse 21. Because it's in verse 21 that the psalm changes over to a new spirit. It says this, verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth, That's the desperate cry of the man in need. And then the verse says, For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. And the man who cries in need in the first half of the psalm is replaced by a man who now stands up and exhorts the nation and speaks firmly and strongly in the second half of the psalm. And I believe that hidden in verse 21 is the secret of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is hidden in the very midst of verse 21. A man that cries is a man that is delivered. Now, do you know that the first half of of Psalm uh, 22 
is totally and absolutely linked to the words and the language and the thoughts of Psalm 71, which is, of course, the psalm of David's bedchamber, as we've had it in an earlier study. So let me just show you some connections then with the psalm and the Chronicles record. In the first of Chronicles 28 and verse 2, it says, David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren. He's assembled all Israel. First of Chronicles 28 verse 2. Hear me, my brethren. But that's Psalm 22 and verse 22, is it not? I will declare thy name unto my brethren, says the psalm. This is the man who's been delivered and stands again upon his feet. In the first of Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 5, it says, And of all my sons, for Yahweh hath given me many sons, he hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. Not David's kingdom, but the kingdom of Yahweh. But that's Psalm 22 and verse 28, is it not? For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he is the governor among the nations. And when it says in the first of Chronicles 28 and verse 9 that David turned to Solomon his son and said, And thou, Solomon my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart. Well, that's Psalm 22 and verse 30. And I'm reading from Rotherham's translation which says, My seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to Yahweh for a generation. My seed shall serve him. Solomon, my son, serve thou the God of thy father with a perfect heart. And when it says in the book of Chronicles, and I'm moving to chapter 29 now because it's all part of the same speech on the same day. When it says in verse 10 of 1st of Chronicles 29, wherefore David blessed Yahweh before all the congregation, well, that again is, is verse 22 of Psalm 22, which says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. David blessed Yahweh before all the congregation, says 1 Chronicles 29 verse 10. Oh, and when it says in the first of Chronicles 29 and verse 11, at the end of the verse, it says, Thine is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and thou art exalted as head above all. Well, that's the spirit of Psalm 22 and verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto Yahweh, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. And when the first of Chronicles 29 says in verse 12, both riches and honour come of thee, and thou reignest over all. Thou reignest over all. That's the first of that, that, that's Psalm 22 and verse 28. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he is the governor among the nations. But you see the word governor there? He's the governor among the nations. That's the same word translated reignest in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 12. Both riches and honour come of thee, and thou art the governor over all. It's the same word you see in the Hebrew. When First of Chronicles 29 says at the end of verse 15 that our days are on the earth as a shadow, and there is none abiding, that's the spirit of Psalm 22 and verse 29 at the end of the psalm when it says, 
all they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. For none can keep alive his own soul. There is none abiding, says David. There is no continuance for any of us. None can keep alive his soul. And when it says in the first of Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 23, and David, sorry, verse 20, David said to all the congregation, now bless Yahweh your God, that's the spirit of Psalm 22, verse 23. Ye that fear Yahweh, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. Fear him all the seed of Israel. And maybe just one last one. Verse 20 again of 1 Chronicles 29 says, And all the congregation blessed Yahweh God of their fathers, and they bowed their heads, and they worshipped the king. They worshipped Yahweh, verse 20, and did eat and drink before him, verse 22. They worshipped him, verse 20. They did eat and drink before him, verse 22. And verse 29 of Psalm 22 says, All they that be fat upon the earth, all the great ones of the earth, as Rodham says, shall eat and worship. Oh yes, I think that this psalm is set at the moment of the crisis and recovery of David in his old age. So what do you think it means in the psalm when it says in verse 18 of Psalm 22, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Well, do you know that that word garments there is the same word concerning, sorry, I think it's the word vesture, is the same word of the garments of Shiloh in Genesis 49 verse 11, and the same word for the royal apparel of Ahasuerus and Esther chapter 6 and verse 8. And what it's saying, of course, is his opponents were just waiting in the wings for the old man to die that they might take the royal robes of office and divide them among themselves. Adonijah, Joab, Abiathar, just waiting to take the signs of kingship from the old man. Yes, they were waiting to part David's garments and take the kingdom. You know, if you could hold your hand in Psalm 22 and come back to um, 1st of Chronicles 28. Just one final thing, which unfortunately through lack of time I won't be able to expound, but I'll leave you the references and you might like to think about this. Do you know that in all this story of the pattern of the house that David speaks to the nation about in the 1st of Chronicles 28, I, I believe that David has a special focus on that house. That house means one thing to David in particular more than anything else. And that's this. That the house of God is the place of Yahweh's forgiveness through the mercy seat. Now let me show you why. Because do you know in the first of Chronicles 20, 28 there are three allusions to the mercy seat. Here's the first one. First of Chronicles 28, verse 2. I had in mine heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh and for the footstool of our God. You know that that word footstool is a word that in effect means the mercy seat. Because God dwelt above the mercy seat, it was considered to be his footstool. So the footstool of 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 2 is the mercy seat. In 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 
11 that says at the end of the verse, David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses and of the treasuries and of the chambers and of the inner parlors thereof. And he gave him the pattern, verse 11, of the place of the mercy seat. Do you know that that word mercy seat in First of Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 11 is the only time, the only time outside the book of the law that the mercy seat is ever mentioned here in the pattern of David's house. And in verse 18 of First of Chronicles 28, it says, and for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight. And then the last item, which by the way was not weighed, this would be gold without weight, as much gold as would be needed, gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, the chariot of the cherubim. That's part of the mercy seat. Three allusions to the mercy seat. Do you know, brothers and sisters, in Psalm 22, there are three allusions to the mercy seat. Psalm 22 says in verse 3, Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. And the word inhabit in Psalm 22 and verse 3 does mean to sit down or to dwell, and it's the word used in Psalm 99 verse 1 when it says God dwells between the cherubim. And you see, because the cherubim was the place where the glory of God was considered to dwell, the nation sang their praises towards the place of the mercy seat where God was. And so when Psalm 22 says in verse 3, But thou art holy, O thou that dwellest among or in the very praises of thy people, it's an allusion to the mercy seat to whence the praises of the nation were directed. In Psalm 22 and verse 21, David says, Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn, now, the unicorn here is, is a word that means literally, I think, the wild ox. But you see, the ox face is one of the faces of the cherubim. In fact, I think it was one of the most important faces of the Old Testament mercy seat from the law of Moses because it's the face of sacrifice and the face of sacrificial offering. And when David says in the psalm in verse 21, thou hast heard me from the horns of the ox, I believe in it's an allusion to the face of the ox over the mercy seat from that place. God answered the prayer of the cry of his servant. And in Psalm 22 and verse 24, it says, For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, neither hath he hid his face from him. But you see, the face of God was over the mercy seat. Do you remember how Psalm 80 verse 1 says, O God, shine forth from the cherubim, Cause thy face to shine upon us, says Psalm 80, verses 1 to 3. And the face of God shone forth from the cherubim, and God did not hide his face from his servant, says 
Psalm 22 and verse 24. So three allusions to the mercy seat in the first of Chronicles 28 and three allusions to the mercy seat in Psalm 22. The house of God would become the place of forgiveness both for the king and for the great congregation gathered together unto him on this mighty occasion. The man who had been miraculously snatched from death and revived to lead this great congregation in the praises of Israel. Oh yes, I think this psalm was composed on that day as David exhorts the nation, as it says in verse 29 of Psalm 22. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship, and they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him, and it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. Do you remember how David had prayed, Give me strength that I might show thy power unto the generation to come. Well, here it was, the generation, gathered before him now, and this generation would be counted as a seed to God. And the old man exhorts them, therefore, that they might take up the spirit of what they've seen in his life and be faithful before the Father. Well, he got them there, brothers and sisters. He gathered all Israel together that he might inspire them on this occasion. But David was going to inspire them by more than his words. David was going to inspire them by the circumstances of his life and by the excellence of his example. And how he did that is, God willing, our study tomorrow. As you can see in the course of these particular studies, I have been highly technically proficient. And so this morning you're about to, be, um, you're about to receive the results of my labours uh, by the production of the, what in effect amounts to the sole overhead I'm going to graciously bestow upon you for the whole course of six sessions. And having said that though, you might find it a useful overhead, in fact I think a very good Bible marking box, because this is a summary of David in old age, the chronology of this part of his life, and it really forms the basis for our studies. And I can advise you that um, a copy of this has been uh, made, uh, so that copies can be run off, and um, circumstances permitting, you may even be uh, able to receive one of those by the end of our study this morning. So let's just review both the, uh, the sections that we've already looked at and that which is to come, uh, by means of reference to that chronology. So here then is the story of David in old age. Uh, you'll notice that in our first session we looked at the census and the plague, the selection of Mount Moriah, and a section at the start of the first of Chronicles 22 which we didn't have time to look at concerning the spirit of David's preparation. And that really was the burden of our opening study. And do you notice how that after that we moved in our second study yesterday to the king's record, 
which dealt with the feebleness of David, the revolt of Adonijah, and the first coronation of Solomon. And we move to the king's record, brothers and sisters, simply for this reason, that really the first of Chronicles chapter 23 verse 1 is the summary of all that happens in the first of Kings chapter 1. So it's all embraced in that, in that summary statement of the first of Chronicles chapter 23 verse 1 when it says, Now it came to pass when David was old and full of years that he made Solomon his son king. And now, this morning, we're going to come back in our third study to the Chronicles record again, to chapter 23, right through to chapter 27. And we're going to look at the numbering of the Levites, the priests and the singers and the porters, the captains and the rulers and the officers, as David makes preparation for the things of the house of God. In our study tomorrow, God willing, we're look at, look, going to look at the great assembly of the first of Chronicles, chapter 28, in our next study, we're going to look at the famous prayer of dedication in the first of Chronicles 29. And in our last study, we're going to look at the charge of David to Solomon and move largely back to the king's record in the first of Kings chapter 2 in order to conclude our studies. But really, it's these chapters in Chronicles that largely deal with, the, with this time of David's life. And you'll remember that I made the point in my first study that I believe that this section is all set in the last year of his life. I think that the first of Chronicles 21 and the matter of the census and the plague that follows probably brought us into the final 12 months of David's life. And everything that will follow in Chronicles right through to chapter 29 is set in that 12-month cycle. Well, let's come to the first of Chronicles chapter 23 this morning then and pick up the record in terms of what's about to occur. And you'll remember that we left David in our last study so old and so cold and so weak as he lay upon his bed that he was unable to do anything more, brothers and sisters, in terms of the coronation of his son Solomon than to nod in agreement from his bed. But his mind was strong. And his thoughts were racing as he dwelt upon the fullness of God's promise to him. And you remember how he had prayed in Psalm 71 verse 18. Remember in that special psalm, All forsake me not until I have showed thy strength and thy power unto the generation to come. And you know what? God was going to answer the prayer of his servant. And God reinvigorated his body so that he could fulfill what already had vitality in his mind. It would be the blessing of God that would bring him forth from the bedchamber to accomplish the things that we're about to look at by way of study and exhortation this morning. So coming to the first of Chronicles 23 verse 1, we take up then the Chronicles record again this morning. And it says this, So when David was old and full of days... He made Solomon, his son, king over Israel. And he gathered together all the princes of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and upwards, uh, every man by the number of their poles, man by man. And, and I think that the reference to the numbering of the Levites from the age of 30 years old and upwards, in fact, takes us back to the provisions of the law. They used to be numbered that way. They were numbered from 30 years old and upward in the days of Moses. But David's going to make a change in this chapter. 
Because we're going to be told in this chapter in verse 27 that under David's instruction, they will be numbered from 20 years old and above. And he's going to change the benchmark of the age. And I think there was a reason for that, brothers and sisters. You see, under the law of Moses, the work of the Levites was very burdensome. They had to remember carry the boards of the tabernacle. They had to carry the tabernacle furniture. They had to carry all the coverings and the drapes, which, by the way, were enormously heavy. And so the age for the Levites in the days of Moses was 30, so that they had sufficient strength to bear the burdens of responsibility. It also shortened the years of their service. But David says, in this numbering of the first of Chronicles 23, no, he says, we're going to number now from 20 years old and upwards. And he reduces the age. And I think one of the reasons was, firstly, because as he's going to say in this chapter, in verse 26 of First Chronicles 23, the Levites shall no more carry the tabernacle, nor any vessel of it for the service thereof. And you see, the responsibility of the Levites was going to change now. Not, no longer would they have the burdens of carrying the tabernacle and its furniture. But with the house of God being established, whilst the carrying duties would diminish, the number of Levites needed for other things would be greatly expanded and increased. And I think the way David made provision for that was by lowering the age to age 20 so that more Levites now could be involved in the service of the house of God to come. And you know that that new benchmark, once begun by David, became the standard of the Levites, I think, ever after. We're told in the second of Chronicles chapter 31 and verse 17 that in the days of Hezekiah, he numbered the Levites from 20 and up. We're told that even after the return from the exile in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 8, that the numbers were, that the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and up. And so the benchmark of David in Chronicles here becomes the new standard for the numbering of the Levites. And that's what this chapter is going to be about. In fact, the chapter, uh, chapters 23 to 27 is going to be very much about the numbering sequence of both the priests and the Levites. In fact, you see what it says in verse 6 of First of Chronicles 23. It says, And David divided them into courses among the sons of Levi. Now, some of you may recall this particular overhead because it was um, prepared in conjunction with some studies on the house of Asaph, but it's relevant to our, our consideration this morning in, in terms of the labours of David. Because what's going to unfold in these chapters is the entire administration of the house of God that David is preparing for. This is the focus of David's mind. In chapter 23, he's going to divide the courses of the Levites and 24,000 of them will be involved in the house of God. In chapter 24, he's going to devote, he's going to, to divide the priests that will execute the priestly office in the sanctuary, and there will be 24 courses of them. In chapter 25, he's going to ordain the singers to give thanks and praise in the sanctuary, and there will be 24 courses of them. In chapter 26, he's going to organize the gatekeepers or the porters to guard the holiness of the sanctuary, and there will be 24 courses of them. And in chapter 27, he's going to organize the captains that will serve the king on all matters of business, and there will be 12 men relating to the months of the year and to the tribes of the nation, and each of those will command 24,000 that will be under the influence of that man. So the whole system of administration 
for the priests and the Levites and the house of God that David is about to organize will be centered around the number 24. Interesting, actually, because when we go through into the kingdom age, you'll remember in the book of Revelation, we're told that when the Lamb comes, that those that gather around him are described as 24 elders that are associated with the Lamb. And those 24 elders, says the record, are associated both with the harps of the singers and with the vials of the incense that the priests would offer. There will be priests and singers after the mysterious number 24 in the kingdom age, all built out of the story of David's labors on this occasion. So let's see what he does then in these chapters that follow. So in the, in the 23rd chapter, we have general reference then to the fact that he's going to take the Levites and the priests, as verse 2 says, and apportion them into these courses, as, as verse 6 says, David divided them into courses, which is the basis of our title for the study this morning. So coming to chapter 24, we notice this. Chapter 24 says in verse 1, Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. But that word divisions in chapter 24 verse 1 is the same as the word courses in chapter 23 verse 6. It's the same word in the Hebrew. These are the courses of the sons of Aaron, which means, of course, the courses of the priests. And in fact, you'll notice what happens in verse 3. It says, David distributed them both Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar according to their office their officers in the service. Do you remember that there had been a prophecy made concerning the priesthood on an earlier occasion, and a prophecy had said something like this, And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to all that is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices, that I may eat a piece of bread. First of Samuel chapter 2, verses 35 to 36. Do you know, that prophecy was uttered to Eli, who was of the house of Ithamar. And the prophecy said that I'll raise up a faithful priest who'll walk before mine anointed, and it come, shall come to pass that all that remains of thy house will speak to this other priest and ask for help and for assistance. It was a prophecy that the house of Eleazar would wax and the house of Ithamar would wane. And so it came to pass. Because you see what it says in the first of Chronicles 24 and verse 4, that when David began to organize the courses of the priests, verse 4 says, there were more chief men found of the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar. And thus were they divided. Among the sons of Eleazar there were 16 chief men of the house of their fathers and eight among the sons of Ithamar according to the house of their fathers. And so already the house of Eleazar is twice the size now of the house of Ithamar, 16 plus 8, 24 courses of priests, but with Eleazar in the ascendancy under Zadok the priest. And so verse 5 says, thus were they divided by lot, one sort with another. So the priests were selected by the impartiality of divine lot, and they came forth one after the other in the sequence of 24 courses. 
And then verse 20 says, uh, so verses 1 to 19 is really the organization of the priestly courses, but from verse 20 to 31, we have the story of the Levites that served the priests. These were not all the Levites, just the Levites that had special responsibility to administer on behalf of the priests in their office. They're referred to, by the way, in chapter 23 and verse 28. And it says that these were appointed by the same process of lot. Because verse 31 says, These likewise cast lots over against their brethren, the sons of Aaron, in the presence of David the king and Zadok and Ahimelech. And so when it says these likewise cast lots, I think it's telling us that the Levites that were appointed to look after the priests in the service of the house of God, they were appointed by the same lot that appointed the priests. So how many courses of Levites do you think there might have been that served the priests? And the answer is, well, logically, probably 24. 24 courses of Levites that supported 24 courses of priests in the ministration of the house of God. And then chapter 25, verse 1 says... Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps and psalteries and cymbals. And so now we've got the orders or the courses of the singers. And if we count them up, there's 24, because in verse 2 there are four sons of Asaph. In verse 3, there will be six sons of Jeduthun. And in verse 4, there will be 14 sons of Heman. 6 plus 4 plus 14 is 24 courses of singers. And they're going to be chosen by lot as well, says verse 8. They cast lots, ward against ward, as well the small as the great, the teacher as the scholar. And so the number of them, verse 7, the number of them that sang the songs of God in the house of God were 204 score and 8. And 288 people, or 288 singers, divided by 24 courses, equals 12 persons that sang in a course of singers each day in the house of God. And then chapter 26 tells us that here in verse 1 it says, concerning the divisions of the porters. And again, the word divisions here is the word courses. So we've got the courses of the porters. It's referred to again in verse 12. Among these were the courses of the porters. And again in verse 19. These were the divisions or the courses of the porters. Now we're told concerning these in verse 13 that they were appointed by lot, as well the small as the great, according to the house of their fathers for every gate. So there were porters at every gate of the sanctuary. And so they were. We're told in another passage in the first of Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 24, in four quarters were the porters toward the east, the west, the north, and the south. And the four chief porters guarded all four sides of the sanctuary. In other words, what we're being told, brothers and sisters, is you couldn't get into the house of God without going past a gate. And you couldn't get past the threshold of that gate without passing through the, the scrutiny and approval of one of the porters. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't get through. What do you think the porters were looking for? Well, they wanted to admit the godly and the righteous and the holy and the humble and the contrite. They wanted to admit those who would joyfully submit to the principles of the divine requirements for approaching him in worship. 
The porters wanted all such to come into the house of God. But 2 Chronicles 23 verse 19 tells us, which we won't turn up, says they also wanted to deny entrance to the unclean, to the proud, to the profane, to the unholy, to the self-opinionated, to the aggressive. And everyone would learn when they came to the house of God that you could not just come and go as you pleased. Or no, there were porters that guarded the holiness of the sanctuary of God. They're there standing at the threshold of the gate to see to the very best of their ability that those that enter the house of God were holy in conduct and attitude that they might approach and worship God in an acceptable manner and find him. And I think there were 24 courses, you see. In fact, you can count them up. Verse 17. Eastward were six Levites. Northward four that's 10, southward 4, that's 14, toward a supum 2 and 2, that's 18, at Parbar westward 4 at the causeway, that's 22, and 2 at Parbar itself, that's 24. And however the administration was divided around the sanctuary on each, four, each of the four sides, it's highly likely that there were 24 courses of doorkeepers that administered the guardianship of the sanctuary of God. Uh, by the way, do you notice what type of gentleman officiated as porters of the sanctuary? Verse 6 says, They were mighty men of valour. Verse 7 says, they were strong men. Verse 8 says, they were able men for strength for the service. And verse 9 says, they were strong men. So when you came to the house of God and you saw one of the porters, well... Believe me, brothers and sisters, when one of the porters says you're not allowed in, you didn't quarrel with the porter of the house of God. They were mighty men of valor, and they warred the warfare of the house of God. They were part of Yahweh's army, guarding the holiness of his sanctuary. And then in chapter 27, we will be told in verse 1 that the number of Israel, that the children of Israel after their number, to wit the chief fathers and captains of thousands and hundreds, and now there will be the appointment of, of men by course, it says, of every course 24,000 that will come month by month for the administration of the kingdom as a whole. Now, I want you to stop and think then about these chapters, brothers and sisters, in terms of what's been going on. I, I did just miss a couple of sections out, so perhaps for fullness I should give them to you. So back in chapter 26, we've got the courses of the porters from verses 1 to 19. Then from verses 20 to 28, we've got the king's treasurers, verses 20 to 28. Then from verses 29 to 32, we've got the king's officers, and then in chapter 27 and verse 1 uh, through to verse 15, we've got the captains of the, uh, of the months. Verses 16 to 24, we've got the princes of the tribes. 
And lastly, from verses 25 to 34, we've got the king's rulers over the king's substance. Oh, and by the way, do you remember we talked about that all of this is happening at the very end of David's life? Just come back to chapter 23 for a moment and have a look at a couple of significant references in the very middle of these chapters about the numbering of the courses and the organization of the house of God. First of Chronicles 23, verse 27. For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above. By the last words of David. You see, this is right at the very, very end of his life, surely. How close to the end? Definitely in the last year, because do you see what chapter 27 says? Sorry, chapter 26. In chapter 26 and verse 31, in the appointment of the king's officers, the record will tell us, verse 31, among the Hebronites was Yeriah the chief, even among the Hebronites, according to the generations of his fathers, in the 40th year of the reign of David they were sought for. The 40th year of the reign of David. If you put in your margin a reference to chapter 29 and verse 27, you'll find that that chapter says, chapter 29, verse 27, David the time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Chapter 29, verse 27. He reigned for 40 years and he died. So when chapter, 20, when chapter 26, verse 31 says, in the 40th year of the reign of David, these were sought for, this is the very last year of his life that he is organizing this administration of the house of God. Oh yes, we're right there, brothers and sisters, at the time of the end. Now, I want you to come back and have a look at two key ideas that flow forth in these chapters, which I think are remarkable. And that's this. That no sooner has David anointed Solomon, as chapter 23, verse 1 says, he made Solomon his son, king over Israel, no sooner has that happened that all the events that will now follow from chapter 23 to 27 are all going to be set in motion by the appointment of Solomon and we are struck in the record by the fact that this is not the man that we saw languishing upon his bed in the first of Kings chapter 1. Here is a revived and energetic man who brims with enthusiasm and activity and plans. It's almost as if he jumps up off his bed and he moves ahead with such speed and pace that even Solomon runs panting behind his father struggling to keep up. It's a remarkable story of activity in these chapters. And I want you to notice two things. The first is David's hand is going to touch every single aspect of the planning for this temple worship. Absolutely nothing will be left to chance. And I think, you see, the reason for that, brothers and sisters, is because as an old man, David knew that spiritual strength in an ecclesia the spirit of zeal and dedication, the clear distinction between right and wrong, none of this happens in ecclesial life spontaneously or by accident. Ecclesias are spiritually strong when principles have been established in advance, thought out beforehand, for the sound conduct and the sound behavior and the sound practice of the truth. 
And the astounding lengths that David went to tell us, I think, how vital he considered this matter of organization to be. Just come and have a look at it. First of Chronicles chapter 22. If we start from chapter 22, which is really set at this same time, by the way, after the appointment of Solomon, I believe. It says this. It's really just based upon the occurrence of David's name, but how impressive it is. At chapter 22, verse 2, And David commanded to gather together the strangers. Verse 3, And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates. Verse 5, at the end of the verse, So David prepared abundantly before his death. Chapter 23, verse 1, So when David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son, king over Israel, and he gathered together all the princes of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Verse 6, And David divided them into courses among the sons of Levi. Verse 25, For David said, Yahweh Elohim of Israel hath given rest unto his people, that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever, and also unto the Levites, that they shall no more carry the tabernacle, nor any vessels of it for the service thereof. For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered. Chapter 24, verse 3, And David distributed them, both Zadok of the sons of Eleazar, and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar. Verse 6, And Shemaiah, the son of Nethanel, the scribe, one of the Levites, wrote them before the king. Verse 31, These likewise cast lots over against their brethren, the sons of Aaron, in the presence of David. Chapter 25, verse 1, Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated the singers to the service. Verse 6, so, the, so, so all these were under the hands of their father for song in the house of the Lord, with cymbals and psalteries and harps for the service of the house of God, according to the king's order to Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman. Chapter 26 and verse 26, which Shalemoth and his brethren were over all the treasures of the dedicated things which David the king had dedicated. Verse 31, in the fortieth year of the reign of David, they were sought for. And lastly, chapter 27, verse 23, which says, David took not the number of them from twenty years old and under, because Yahweh had said that he would increase Israel like to the stars of heaven. It's a remarkable story. David's hand is everywhere. He's all over the place. And every single thing that's going to happen in this matter of organization will bear the touch and the care and the thought and the involvement of the king. Nothing is left to chance. Where is the old man, brothers and sisters, that lay immobile upon his bed? He's gone. He's replaced by a veritable dynamo who, with Solomon by his side, now plunges into this exhausting and exacting task of preparing the nation for the worship of the house of God. If you come back to chapter 23 for a moment, do you just notice this one phrase in 1 Samuel 23 and verse 31? And to offer all burnt sacrifices unto Yahweh in the Sabbaths, in the new moons, on the set feasts, by number according to the order commanded unto them. According to the order commanded. Ah, you see, there was order in everything that David did. There was an order to his planning and to his arrangements. 
Do you remember this phrase in the mouth of the Apostle Paul? Let everything be done decently and in order, says the Apostle. First of Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40. And what the Apostle is saying is that that same principle of order that pervade all of David's arrangements for the house of God, that same principle of order should be seen in ecclesial life. By the way, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that therefore ecclesias ought to be over-regulated and over-controlled. We want spontaneity, we want joyfulness of service, we want the liberty of grace in our lives. But we also don't want ecclesias to be haphazard and unorganized. There needs to be a good admixture, doesn't there, of the liberty of individual service and the wisdom of arrangements that will make sure that everything is done decently and in order, as the apostle said after the spirit of David of old. And here's the second key idea that I think that we notice in these particular passages. It's David's intense focus on the house of God. He's absolutely devoted to the idea of the house of God to come. Have a look at this. In chapter 23, 1 of Chronicles 23 and verse 4, it says this. Again, it's just a key phrase, but how impressive it is. David organized the Levites, says chapter 23, verse 4, of which 20 and 4,000 were set forward to the work of the house of Yahweh. And again in verse 24, these were the sons of Levi, after the house of their fathers, even the chief of, of their fathers, as they were counted by number of names by their poles, that did the work for the service of the house of Yahweh. Verse 28, their office was to wait on the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of Yahweh. Verse 32, at the end of the verse, and the charge of the sons of Aaron, their brethren, was in the service of the house of of Yahweh. And as with the Levites in general, so with the priests in particular, because chapter 24 verse 19 says, these were the orderings of them in their service to come into the house of Yahweh. And as with priests, so with singer, because chapter 25 and verse 6 says, all these were under the hands of their father for song in the house of Yahweh with cymbals and psalteries and harps for the service of of the house of God, and as with priest and as with singer, so with doorkeeper, because First of Chronicles 26 and verse 12 says, among these were the orders of the porters, even among the chief men, having wards one against another, to minister in the house of Yahweh. And lastly, verse 20 of chapter 26 says, and of the Levites, Ahijah was over the treasures of the house of God, and over the treasures of the dedicated things. You see, this is where the focus of David is. He planned for the worship of the house as though it was already there. And this is the remarkable thing. There's no house there. Nothing's even been built, brothers and sisters. And yet he's got priests and singers and doorkeepers organized. David can see it all in his mind's eye. So real was the house of God to David. He touched it. He felt it. He walked around the corners of the house, brothers and sisters. He could see it all. He could see the priests over there coming in in the morning to offer the first lamb of the day. He could see the singers assembling in that corner and walking down there to come before that they might op offer the opening hymn of praise in the morning. He could see the doorkeepers on the west and the north and the south and on the causeway at Parbar. 
He could see everything, brothers and sisters, in his mind's eye. So real it was to David. And do you know that at that very moment of time, I think he wrote a psalm that takes us into the mind of David at this moment of his life as he had been re-energized by God to put these things together for the service of God's house. Well, come back to the first of Chronicles chapter 23, if you would, in your left hand. First of Chronicles 23 in your left hand and turn to the 92nd Psalm, Psalm 92. So let's just have a look at Psalm 92 in terms of one or two introductory comments. You'll notice at the top of the psalm, it doesn't actually say it's a psalm of David, it simply says, the prophet exhorteth to praise God. It doesn't attribute the psalm specifically to David. And yet I believe that it clearly was written by David for certain reasons. Do you notice in verse 3 it says that we ought to praise God upon an instrument of ten strings? Do you know that that word ten strings is only found in two other places? Psalm 33 verse 2 and Psalm 144 verse 9. And both of those are considered to be psalms of David. The only other place where a ten-stringed instrument is found. And you notice at the end of verse 3 it says that it should be upon the psaltery, upon the harp, which are both thoroughly Davidic of course, but with a solemn sound, says Psalm 92 verse 3. And the margin says that the Hebrew word is hagayon, and rightly so, hagayon. Do you know that the word hagayon is only found in two other places? Psalm 9 verse 16 and Psalm 19, verse 14. And they're both Psalms of David. Do you notice that the psalmist says in verse 15, at the very end of the psalm, to show that Yahweh is upright, right? He is my rock, says the psalmist. And do you know that that's the special and peculiar expression of David? He is my rock, God is my rock, says David, in Psalm 18, verse 2, in Psalm 18, verse 46, in Psalm 19, verse 14, in Psalm 28, verse 1, in Psalm 31, verse 2, in Psalm 62, verse 2, in Psalm 71, verse 3, here in Psalm 92, verse 15, in Psalm 144, verse 1, it's the expression peculiarly in the mouth of David that God is his rock. Do you notice what the heading of the psalm is? It says concerning this psalm that it is a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. Now the Jewish writings have this to say concerning the heading of Psalm 92. They say that it was sung in the morning at the time of the drink offering and the offering of the first lamb. And that the heading of Psalm 92 is, in the Hebrew text, a psalm or song for the future age, all of which will be a Sabbath, 
the rest which remains for the faithful. The rest which remains. Ah, that's the Sabbath rest, isn't it? The time of the Sabbath rest of the kingdom age. Now, if you've still got First of Chronicles 23, well, that's exactly the spirit of this moment of time in David's life, you see, because verse 25 says, First of Chronicles 23, for David said, Yahweh Elohim of Israel hath given rest unto his people, and now I'm reading from Rodahim's translation, and hath taken up his habitation in Jerusalem unto, time age, unto time's age abiding. And David saw that with the building of the house of God, that Israel would enter into the Sabbath rest of the worship of the Father, when all matters of the flesh would cease. And it would be the joy and delight of all Israel to rest in holy things. The time of Sabbath rest was about to come. And David writes a psalm that expresses that. Make sure you've got both hands still at work, brothers and sisters, and let me just draw attention to what, I've got several connections, but we're not going to have time to, to point them all out, but let me show you one. First of Chronicles 23, verse 30 says, that the objective of this building of the house of God and of the organization of the Levites was, verse 30, so that they might stand every morning to thank and to praise. See those two key words? To thank and to praise. But that's Psalm 92 verse 1. It is a good thing to give thanks unto Yahweh and to sing praises unto thy name. To thank and to praise. That's going to be the very spirit of this psalm. The joy and the happiness and the privilege of coming before God to give thanks and to give praise. Oh, and how often was this to be done? Well, the first of Chronicles 23 verse 30 says to stand every morning to thank and praise Yahweh. And likewise at even. But that's what Psalm 92 says, does it not? Verse 1. It is a good thing to give thanks unto Yahweh and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Oh yes, I think this is the moment of the worship in the house of God that David so, so earnestly looked forward to. So what's this psalm all about then? Well, let me give you a breakup of the psalm and then a couple of connections with David. So verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 92, the goodness of praising God, the goodness of praising God. Verses 4 to 6, the sovereign majesty of God's purpose. Verses 4 to 6. Verses 7 to 9, the inevitable end of Yahweh's enemies. And notice that, by the way, brothers and sisters, not the enemies of David, the inevitable end of Yahweh's enemies and how appropriate this was in David's life because he's just come through the rebellion of Adonijah and all those ungrateful men of the nation who had turned against him. But they're all the enemies of Yahweh, not so much of David but of God and their end is inevitable. Verses 10 and 11 in the psalm is about the renewal and vindication of the righteous. The renewal and vindication of the righteous. And lastly, verses 12 to 15 is about the fruitful vitality of the righteous in old age. 
In fact, you see what it says, verse 12, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. But in the Hebrew, it's the righteous one, singular. One man. The psalmist is thinking about one man. The righteous one shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Of course, you know that both the palm and the cedar are famous for what? Why, for their longevity into oldness of age. Well, this righteous one, says the psalmist, are like the, the cedar and the palm tree. Verse 13, those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. And he says, verse 14, they shall still bring forth fruit. Why, in old age, says the psalm, in old age, they shall be fat and flourishing to show that Yahweh is upright and that he is my rock and that there is no unrighteousness in him. And the cry of the psalmist is of thanksgiving that even in oldness of age he might be planted in the house of God that he loved so well to bring forth fruit to the Father. That's the burden of the psalm. One righteous man, I think this is David, whose heart and mind has already gone forward in time. He's dwelling in the house of God, brothers and sisters. Now, why and how had all this come upon him? Well, you see what it says. Verse 10. My horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn, and I shall be anointed with fresh oil. See, he'd been anointed with oil as a youth, had he not, in the first of Samuel 16? I think that's when he wrote Psalm 23. My head dost thou anoint with oil. But this is fresh oil. This is a new horn of oil poured out upon him in oldness of age. This is the oil of the Spirit of God sent to revive him. The anointing in old age with fresh oil. And that Spirit revived him for this final glorious work of establishing the service of the house of God and giving him the vitality of youth even in old age. That all of these arrangements and administrations might be organized to the glory of the God whom he worshipped. Oh yes, I think this psalm is a celebration of David's miraculous revival under the anointing oil of God that he might stand and be planted in the house of God and bring forth fruit to the glory of the Father. How the old man's mind must have rejoiced at this re-energizing of his body to accomplish what his mind could already do. Now you might not know, brothers and sisters, and if you don't, it's worthwhile taking a note that Psalm 100, and, sorry, not Psalm, that hymn 119 in our hymn book is exactly based upon this psalm. Sweet is the work, my God, my King, to praise thy name, give thanks and sing, to show thy love by morning light and talk of all thy truth at night. My heart shall triumph in the Lord and bless his works and bless his word. Thy works of grace, how bright they shine, how deep thy counsels, how divine. Psalm, hymn 119 is the hymn of David in old age at the time of his anointing. In the words then of David himself, and I shall share a glorious part
when thy pure word has cleansed my heart and fresh supplies of joy are shed like holy oil to cheer my head. Our chairman has given a very erudite and succinct summary of the title. And uh, in fact, the title comes, by the way, from the first of Chronicles chapter 23, verse 1, which we shan't turn to this morning. But it says there that when David was old and full of days, that he made Solomon his son king. And in fact, that's the story that we're going to look at this morning. But we're going to take our, our charter this morning, not from the book of Chronicles, but from the record in the first of Kings. And uh, in that chapter that we had read this morning by way of introduction at our morning devotions. Because the first of Kings is going to follow hard on the heels. Well, let's come and have a look at it. Do you notice how the first of Kings follows on immediately from the Samuel record of the plague, the census and the plague that had occurred? So in the second of Samuel, chapter 24, it says this in the last verse. And David built there an altar unto Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So Yahweh was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Now King David was old and stricken in years and they covered him with clothes but he got no heat. And I think that the fact that the very circumstances of the difficulties of David in the first of Kings 1, following on immediately after the story of the census, tells us, I believe, that David did not escape unscathed from the matter of the pestilence. As Psalm 30, <coughs> excuse me, as Psalm 30 suggested to us, you remember how that in the, in the prayer of David in that psalm, he said that he had cried to the Lord and the Lord had healed him and prevented him from going down into the grave. I think David was entering the final year of his life as this episode of the pestilence moved forward. We're going to come to that, God willing, in one of our later studies. But I think that the decrepitude of the man in the first of Kings chapter 1 is not just the decrepitude of old age, I think that David in this episode is a man reduced to a shadow of his former self, a man who lies cold and still upon his bed, not just the result of, of old age, but of a genuine physical affliction that prostrated the king and left him bereft of his powers. And I think that the anxiety and anguish of the plague that had come truly and rightly upon the flock of Israel had reached out to smite the shepherd and bring him low also. In fact, when it says in the first of Kings, chapter 1 and verse 1, that they covered him with clothes, that word clothes, I think, in this particular context is bed clothes, 
not the garments of outdoor wear, but the clothes or the cloths that come upon the bed. I think that David was bedridden in this episode. We're going to be told that in verse 15 and verse 47 also of the first of Kings chapter 1, that David is prostrate upon his bed at this particular time. Now, as this chapter unfolds, I want, I want us to enter into the circumstances of, of just how sad this moment is in David's life. You see, David's powers have not just faded here. I think he had approached death itself. He was smitten with an illness related to his age, but brought on by the, by, by the anxiety of the matter of the pestilence. And I think his life itself was in danger at this time. And this is what had happened, brothers and sisters. You see, David's life had begun once his kingship was established with his mastery of a far-flung empire where heathen kings trembled at the mention of his name, David the king of Israel. And then his power had diminished to the rulership of Judah after several episodes of revolt within greater Israel. And then it had declined to his command in Jerusalem and the royal capital which he had established there. And then it had reduced to his control of the palace compound which spread over Zion's hill. And then it shrank to his influence over the king's chamber with the few servants who waited upon him. And now, in the first of Kings, chapter 1, now his dominion stretches no further than the end of his bed. And he cannot even manage that, for he shivers in the weakness of a body that he cannot rule. Oh yes, brothers and sisters, this is a low point in David's life, the moment of the first of Kings, chapter 1. The record tells us in verse 1 that he, he get no heat, and his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a, a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. His circulation had deteriorated to the point where he couldn't get warm. I don't think there was anything more in the matter of Abishag than that, by the way, but, but physicians of all ages had recommended that departing vitality could be benefited by the introduction of the warmth and vitality of a youthful person. And so Abishag was brought to try and at least give the king warmth upon the bed that he lay upon prostrate. And at that time, says verse 5, at the time when David was utterly prostrated by this illness. The record says that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king, and he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Do you know, in the margin, you'll find a cross-reference to, uh, to the book of Samuel, 
and to an earlier occasion in the second of Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1 where, where, where Absalom on an earlier occasion prepared chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And what we're told that happened was this, is that David was smitten with illness at the time and Absalom took advantage of the illness of his father and as people came to the gate of Jerusalem he would say to each man, what is thy cause? And whither comest thou? And the man would tell Absalom his business. And Absalom would say, See, thy matters are right. But there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. And Absalom said, All oh, that I were made a judge in Israel, and I should give every man his due. And the record says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel, and he took advantage of the illness of his father. And in effect, he said, said Absalom, I will be king. And he made chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him as a bodyguard. That's exactly what Adonijah does here, modelled on his older brother, no doubt. He took advantage of the illness of his father and said, I shall be king. He might well have been David's oldest son at this time. And the chariots and the horsemen and the runners were a royal bodyguard that indicated that he was the king to be. So why, brothers and sisters, why this proud and ungracious spirit in a son of David. And verse 6 says, his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man. And his mother bare him after Absalom. The New American Standard Bible says, now his father had never crossed him at any time. And David did have a weakness in not guiding his sons and correcting their mistakes. He'd shown a lack of discipline with Amnon in the second of Samuel chapter 13 verse 1. He'd made the same mistake in not properly disciplining Absalom in the second of Samuel chapter 18 and verse 5. And now he will suffer the same problem with Adonijah in the first of Kings chapter 1 and verse 6 because he did not correct his sons at crucial moments in their lives when he ought to have done so. And he paid a heavy price for that, brothers and sisters, did King David. And so verse 7 says in the first of Kings chapter 1, and he conferred with Joab the son of Zeruiah and with Abiathar the priest, and they following Adonijah helped him. You wonder why Joab and, and why Adonijah threw in their lot, sorry, why, why Joab and, and Abiathar threw in their lot with Adonijah on this occasion. And of course the answer must surely be is that they were both aware that their jobs were in danger. Joab realised that Benaiah might well be made the captain of the Lord's army. And Abiathar realised that David's favour already rested on Zadok to be the priest. And in order to preserve, therefore, their positions of authority in the land, in order to stop them from being supplanted, they, they conferred with Adonijah and helped him in the matter of this rebellion. And so verse 8 says, But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Rai, and the mighty men which belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. 
And Ananias slew sheep and oxen and fat cattle by the stone of Zoalath, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren the king's sons and all the men of Judah the king's servants. He, he made his move, did Adonijah, says the record, at a place called Enrogel. Now that's interesting, because if you come back to the book of Joshua, let me just show you a couple of references about Enrogel. In Joshua chapter 15, we're told this, Joshua chapter 15, in the story of the apportioning and allotting of the land, it says this, Joshua 15 verse 1 says, this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah. So here's Judah's portion in the land, says Joshua 15 verse 1. And verse 7, in providing the dimensions of Judah's division, says this, and the border went up toward Debir from the valley of Achor, and so northward looking toward Gilgal, that is before the going up to Adamim, which is on the, on the south side of the river. And the border passed toward the waters of Enshemesh, and the goings out thereof were at Enrogel, says the story. Ah, so Enrogel was on the border of the tribe of Judah. Now come to Joshua chapter 18. We're told in Joshua chapter 18 and verse 11, the record says, Joshua 18 verse 11, the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up according to their families. The lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin. Well, here's the border of Benjamin, says verse 16. And the border came down to the end of the mountain that lieth before the valley of the son of Hinnom, and which is in the valley of the giants on the north, and descended to the valley of Hinnom to the side of Jebusai on the south, and descended to why, en Rogel, says Joshua 18 and, and verse 16. Ah, so en Rogel was on the border between two tribes. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. So why do you think that Adonijah launched his rebellion in that precise spot? And I think he did so, brothers and sisters, in all probability, because straddled between those two places was where the support came for Adonijah, because he'd stolen some of the hearts of the men of Judah, as the record tells us, verse 9, all the king's sons and all the men of Judah, the king's servants, and they of Judah, at least in part, were with Adonijah. And I think perhaps what, uh, what Adonijah had done is made an offer or a pact with Benjamin that in return for their support of his kingship, he would restore the tribe of Benjamin to some of its previous glory which had been enjoyed in the days of Saul. Oh, how Benjamin would have loved that. The tribe of Benjamin, a measure of authority in the land again. And it just so happened that the place he chose neatly straddled those two tribes. And I wonder why, brothers and sisters, if that's the case, whether that takes us back to the first of Chronicles 21, which we won't turn up in verse 6, and might be the answer as to why Job, you'll remember, for some unaccountable reason, forgot to tally Benjamin in the census that he brought back in the first of Chronicles 21, verse 6, to David. Because Joab probably already knew that the hearts of the men of Benjamin were not with David. No, they'd been stolen for the purpose of Adonijah's rebellion. 
And so verse 10 of the first of Kings chapter 1 says, Nathan the prophet and Benaiah are the mighty men and Solomon his brother he called not. And so Nathan, in despair and in grave concern at this sign of rebellion, Nathan spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, doth reign, and David our Lord knoweth it not? Now therefore come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel, that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. And you see, because David was alone in his bedchamber, bereft of all his powers, they of the nation, including Nathan, one of his dear friends, thought that David didn't know what was going on. I think David probably knew exactly what was going on. And David knew with all the knowledge of human nature that was at his disposal after 70 years of life, I think he knew precisely what was happening. But David must have felt this immense frustration that despite his knowledge, there was nothing he could do. He lay on his bed and shivered and could do nothing about the rebellion of his son. And Bathsheba, says the record, verse 15, went in unto the king, into the chamber, and the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite ministered unto the king. You could almost feel the gloom of the bedchamber, can you not, brothers and sisters? The darkened room, the curtains pulled, the old man shivering upon the bed, Abishag the Shunammite, and Bathsheba bowed, verse 16, and did obeisance unto the king, and the king said, What wouldst thou? And Bathsheba came in to make her petition. And she said, verse 17, My lord, thou swearest by Yahweh thy God unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah reigneth, and now, my lord the king, thou knowest it not. And he hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and hath called all the sons of the king, and Abiath the priest, and Joab the captain of the host. But... But Solomon thy servant hath he not called? And thou, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldest tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. And she makes her plea on behalf of not only Solomon but herself that their lives might be, pre might be preserved. But look at what she says, verse 21, brothers and sisters, all that the Spirit of God must have put these words into the lips of Bathsheba on this occasion. Verse 21. It was just the right thing for her to say. Otherwise it shall come to pass when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers that I and my son Solomon shall be counted defenders. If you don't do anything, David, my life will be lost. But she didn't say that. She said, when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, Oh, now where did that come from, brothers and sisters? What thinkest thou? That's the promise to David in the second of Samuel chapter 7. Now come and have a look. I think, I think the words must have been given under inspiration to, to Bathsheba to say on this occasion, when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, if you don't do something about this, my life and Solomon's life will be forfeit. And David's mind was transported back to an earlier occasion when these words had come to him in the second of Samuel, chapter 7 and verse 12. 
And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, so there's the expression of Bathsheba, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build an house for my name. Why, the very thing that was moving David in the matter of the census of Israel, the things concerning the house of God, this one to come will build that house. And David's mind comes back now to the fullness of the promise. And if that king is not set on the throne and not established, then that house will never be built. And you can almost see the, the, the thought of that promise, the covenant promise, entering into David's mind as he lay there still upon the bed and energizing the king as he thought upon these things. And verse 22, coming back to the first of Kings chapter 1, why you'd never think what happened. Verse 22 says, Lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and they told the king and said, Behold, Nathan the prophet, why the very man who devouched the promise to him in the second of Samuel chapter 7 now stands before him. Oh yes, I think David's mind had been taken back to the promise of the covenant made to him and of the seed that should arise after he slept with his fathers who would indeed build a house for God's name. And here, I think, was the key to the stirring of David on this occasion. And when Nathan makes his petition, we're told this at the end of the story of that petition that was made. Verse 28, Bathsheba had evidently retired when Nathan had been announced. And so in verse 28, it says, the king, king David answered and said, call me Bathsheba. And she came in unto the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore and said, As Yahweh liveth that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by Yahweh Elohim of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead, even so will I certainly do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Call me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king. And the king said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule, the royal mule, the sign of royal designation, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there, king over Israel, and blow ye with the trumpet and say, God save King Solomon. And then ye shall come up after him, that he may come and sit upon my throne, for he shall be king in my stead. You know, when you read this chapter, you get the sense of the recovery of David. Can you feel that? A man who lies upon his bed, shivering under his clothes, the drawn curtains, absolutely powerless and unable to do anything in the matter of the nation. And in comes Bathsheba, and with that one phrase, lifted by the Spirit out of the promise to David, when thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. The mind of David was stirred. And all of a sudden, the king that could do nothing calls Bathsheba back in and calls Nathan in and starts issuing commands and orders. You can almost see him sort of perking up upon his bed, can you not? As, as all, all these things start to come into his mind and the promise thrills him again with the certainty of what God had said should be upon him. 
And so verse 39 says, And Zadok the priest took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. Now you might like to take a note in your margins, brothers and sisters, for reasons that we will clarify tomorrow, is that when it says he anointed Solomon, that that phrase in verse 39 correlates to the first of Chronicles chapter 23 verse 1. This is the first anointing of Solomon. There shall be another one later on. But the one of the first of Kings chapter 1 verse 39 answers to the first of Chronicles 23 verse 1 when the record will say, it came to pass when David was old and full of days that he made Solomon his son king. And it's the anointing of this chapter that the first of Chronicles chapter 23 uh, refers to. So coming to the end of the story, we're told this in verse, um, in verse 47. And you'll remember that they of the rebellion of Adonijah heard the shouts and the noise and the cheering of the anointing of Solomon. And the message came to them saying that they've caused Solomon to be king. And says verse 47, and moreover the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David saying, God make the name of Solomon better than thy name and make his throne greater than thy throne. And the king bowed himself upon his bed. You know, I find that statement Again, profoundly moving. This is the day that Solomon, the beloved son of David, was crowned to be king. And David, for all the stirrings of his mind, is so weak in body that he cannot be there. He cannot witness the coronation of his son. The best he could do, says the record, the best he could do was just a nod in approval upon his bed. Ah, but he was in good company, was he not, brothers and sisters, when he gave that nod? Because if you come back to the book of Genesis and to the 47th chapter, wasn't there another man who nodded in approval upon his bed at the fulfillment of things yet to come? Because it says, does it not, in Genesis 47, at the end of the chapter, verse 29, the time drew nigh that Israel must die, and he called his son Joseph and said unto him, if now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, swear unto me. And he swear unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. And Israel took a charge of his son in the matters of the truth, that the truth would be preserved by his offspring. And he bowed upon the bed's head. And that's exactly what David does here in the first of Kings chapter 1 and verse 47. And I think he took a charge of Solomon in just the same way that, Isaiah, that, that, that Israel rather took a charge of Joseph his son. And we're told of that charge, again, which we won't turn up, in the first of Chronicles 22, verses 6 to 11. David takes a charge of Solomon in the same way that he will be faithful to the truth on this occasion when he bowed upon the bed's head. Now, do you know, brothers and sisters, I think David wrote a psalm at this precise moment of time as he lay upon his bed. 
A psalm that takes us right into the bedchamber and tells us how David felt at this time of desperate, frustrating weakness in his life. Just exactly how he felt. I think he wrote it at this very moment of time. So, shall we come and have a look at that then? It's Psalm 70 and 71. Written, I believe, at the very moment of the first of Kings chapter 1 and the march of Nathan and Bathsheba into the bedchamber of the old man who lay bereft of his powers. Now, it's been suggested, and I think rightly so, that Psalms 70 and 71 are in fact a single psalm, bound together by certain key phrases, and I think it is so. Do you notice, for example, it says this in Psalm 70, verses 1 and 2. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Yahweh. Let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. And those words are going to be repeated in Psalm 71, verses 12 and 13. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste for my help. Let them be confounded and consumed that are adversaries to my soul. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor that seek my hurt, cries the psalmist. And again, the phrase will reoccur at the end of verse 24. For they are confounded, they are brought unto shame that seek my hurt. And these phrases become the fabric around which the psalm is woven. Psalm 70 verses 1 and 2, Psalm 71 verses 12 and 13, and the last phrase of verse 24. The man who cries to God that those who are against him might be ashamed and confounded and brought to confusion that seek his hurt. Oh yes, I think this is David's prayer on this occasion. And I'll tell you why. See what the psalm says, verse 9 of Psalm 71. Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. Verse 18. Now also when I am old and grey-headed, O God, Forsake me not. You see the word old there in Psalm 71, verse 9 and verse 18. That's the same word used in the first of Kings, chapter 1, verse 1. And David was old and he lay upon his bed. And it's the same word in the first of Chronicles, chapter 23, verse 1. And it came to pass when David was old and full of days that he made Solomon his son king. Same word, old. Oh yes, I think this is the timing of the psalm, you see. A time when he expected to die, when he was desperately weak, when he was deserted and despised and opposed by those who planned his downfall at this very time and completely aware of the danger to himself as this psalm will indicate in verse 4, verse 10, verse 13, verse 24. Oh yes, the king in his bedchamber knew exactly what was going on. He cries out in the psalm to God because there was nothing else left for him to do. Let me show you one or two interesting things about the spirit of this psalm which I think are consistent with the thinking that David must have had. 
Do you notice in Psalm 70 in verse 4, it says, let all those that seek and rejoice, sorry, let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee, and let such as love thy salvation say continually. You see that word continually. Let them say these things continually. But that's the same word in Psalm 71 verse 3. Be thou my strong habitation whereunto I may continually resort. And it's the same word at the end of verse 6 when it says my praise shall be continually of thee. And it's the same word in verse 14 when it says but I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. Do you know, brothers and sisters, I think that's the word of an old man. The word continual here means to be constant, you see. It's continual and constant. Old men don't like change. They just want the stability of a life that is continually resting in the praise and hope of the Father. Oh, says David, that that might not be changed. I just want that constant, continual, stable, unchanging spirit of resting in the Father and continually being there. Oh yes, that's the word of an old man, don't you think? And you see, this one is like unto it. Verse 8 says, Let my praise be, let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honour all the day, he says. And again, verse 15, My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day. Verse 24, my tongue also shall talk of thy righteousness all the day. Well, what else could he do lying upon his bed, thinking about his God, but to think all the day upon the things that might praise the Father? He had nothing else to do and nothing else that he could do. But you see, this is the wonderful lesson, I think, of the first of Kings, chapter 1, is that this man who lay physically powerless, his mind was alive. His mind was racing on eternal and precious things. Oh yes, the king was very much alive in his mind, was he not? And you know, it's quite interesting. Just one final thing in terms of the spirit of this psalm, and I think this is a lovely thought. Do you know that there are some psalms that talk about the righteousness of David when he writes as a young man, and he talks about God supporting him and God vindicating him and God helping him in his righteousness, in his honour and integrity. I've walked before God with an upright heart. Oh, uphold me in my righteousness, says David in his early years. But when he writes this psalm, he never once talks about his righteousness. Only God's. You see it here? Verse 2 of Psalm 71. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Verse 15. My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness. Verse 16, I will go in the strength of the Lord God, I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. Verse 19, thy righteousness also, O God, is very high. Verse 24, my tongue also shall talk of thy righteousness all the day. You see, this is the spirit of an older person who has wrestled with sin 
and who has learned the utter hopelessness of sin's flesh, and the all-surpassing greatness of Yahweh's honor and Yahweh's righteousness and Yahweh's goodness to save. There's no righteousness of David left that he wants to talk about. Just the righteousness of God. Isn't that the focus, brothers and sisters, of where godly lives and godly minds should ultimately ascend? Just the glory and honor and righteousness of the Father himself and not ours. We are supremely unimportant in the overall circumstance of life apart from our relevance to the purpose of God. And you know that if you read this psalm, it's a marvellous thing. But you'll find that the man who says in verse 9, cast me not off in the time of old age, forsake me not when my strength faileth, for mine enemies speak against me, and they that lay wait for my soul take counsel together is the same man that will say this in verse 14, but I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day, for I know not the numbers. And as the same man that says, verse 20, thou which hast showed me great and sore troubles shall quicken me again. And the man who says in verse 22, I will also praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth, O my God. And says in verse 23, my lips shall greatly... It's the same man who comes alive in the first of Kings chapter 1. And as, as this man encourages himself in the promise of God, you'll see the spirit of the king come alive in Psalm 71. Well, let's uh, hold Psalm 71 and come back to the first of Kings and let me show you the psalm in the story just that we might synchronise the two together. So just briefly, one or two points of contact. It says this, first of Kings chapter 1. So remember when it says in verse 1, now King David was old, that's Psalm 71 verse 9 and verse 18. And when it says in the first of Kings chapter 1 and verse 5, then Adonijah the son of Haggath exalted himself, that's really Psalm 70 verse 3 when it says, let them be turned back for a reward of their shame that say, aha, aha, because that was the spirit of, of Adonijah on this occasion. Aha, my opportunity has come to be king. And when it says in the first of Kings chapter 1 and, and verse 15 that the king was very old in the bedchamber, that's really Psalm 71 verse 7 where David laments, I am as a wonder to many. And they took his illness as a token and a portent from God that he was suffering because of sin. When the first of Kings chapter 1 verse 19 says that Adonijah and Abiathar and Joab had collaborated together in the matter of the rebellion, that's why that's Psalm 71 verse 4. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous, out of the hand of the cruel man. And they were all there together, you see. Adonijah the wicked man, Abiathar the unrighteous man, Joab the cruel man, all there in this plot to overthrow the king. When the first of Kings chapter 1 verse 29 says, And the king swear and said, As Yahweh liveth that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress. That's Psalm 71. And verse 23, when it says, 
My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee, and my soul which thou hast redeemed. Oh yes, I think this psalm is locked into the story of the first of Kings, chapter 1. And here, by way of exhortation, brothers and sisters, is the power of God's promise to enthuse and invigorate the mind even when the physical powers are are exhausted. You know, brothers and sisters, our minds are forever young, are they not? There are occasions as life progresses that our body lets us down, but our mind soars free and David's mind was still alive and passionate for spiritual things. Now let me show you one last connection that pulls all this together, I think, wonderfully well. If you come back to the first of Kings, chapter 1 and verse 48, you notice what David said on the occasion of this coronation of his son. So let's pull together the threads of, uh, of what's, what we've discovered in our study this morning and the power of the mind over the body, the triumph over the, of the mind over the body. In the first of Kings 1 verse 48, it says this, the time of the coronation of Solomon. And also thus saith the king, Blessed be Yahweh Elohim of Israel, which hath given me one to sit on my throne this day, mine eyes even seeing it, Mine eyes even seeing it. Now you'd never know where that comes from, would you? I think that comes from the second of Samuel chapter 7 and the promise made to David. I think that's where David, David's mind was. Bathsheba has taken him there. Now come and have a look, you see. In the second of Samuel chapter 7, the record says this. David says, all that God might be blessed, which has given me one to sit on my throne, mine eyes even seeing it. And this is what the promise to David says, 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Oh, but did you see what the promise was? Thy house and thy kingdom, thy throne shall be established forever before thee in the presence of David. His own eyes would see it, was the promise of the great covenant of 2nd of Samuel 7. Your eyes shall see the king that sits upon the throne. Blessed be God, says David in the first of Kings 1 verse 48. And he saw in the crowning of Solomon an earnest of the day when he would see the man ascend the throne in his presence who would fulfill the promise. But of course David knew that the real king and the real throne was yet to come when Messiah should ascend. That's the real fulfillment, isn't it, of the second of Samuel 7, when Messiah comes. And there's only one way, brothers and sisters, when Messiah comes to sit upon David's throne, there's only one way that David can see it with his eyes. And that's if he's raised from the dead. Which, by the way, is the promise of the covenant. That in order for it to be done before him, he will have to be raised. Now come to Psalm 71. Psalm 71, yes, Psalm 71 says that's exactly how David understood this matter. And it's this that must have stirred his mind with the hope of wondrous things yet to come. So in Psalm 71, he will say this in understanding and appreciation of the promise. Verse 20, Thou which hast showed me great and sore troubles, shall quicken me again 
and shall bring me up again from the depths of the earth. And thou shalt increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. You see, this was David's hope, the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection that one day he might be there to see with his own eyes the real king enthroned upon the throne. And I can just see, as David's mind reflected on these things, how he was stirred from his bed again by the power of the truth. What a wonderful exhortation to us, brothers and sisters, whenever we're afflicted with physical infirmity, to know that the truth can lift us, transport us out of our despair, to think on wondrous things again, and to bestir ourselves to the service of God. So this is what he prayed for in Psalm 71. Verse 18. Now also when I am old and grey-headed, O God, forsake me not until, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. David just didn't pray for his own recovery, brothers and sisters. He prayed as a God-centered man prays for his recovery that the truth might be shown, that he might pass the passionate flame of the truth on to the next generation before he died. All oh, that thou wouldst preserve my life until I have showed thy truth to the generation to come, he says. Let it be so, cries David, from his bedchamber. Now, do you know, God remarkably answered that prayer. And he, he didn't just get up off his bed, brothers and sisters, but he was blessed with such tremendous recovery of power that he went out and accomplished an enormous number of things in the spirit of how God answered him. So how did that happen? Well, that is, God willing, our study tomorrow. God willing, as our chairman has said, our studies in this second session each morning is going to be on the subject of when David was old and full of days. In fact, do you know that what we're going to look at, God willing, is what I believe is the last 12 months of David's life, just the last 12 months. Everything we're going to look at in our studies will be compressed into those last 12 months of David's life. And in fact, our story is going to start today in the first of Chronicles chapter 21. And uh, if we turn to that chapter, it's a rather interesting one because you'll remember, remember that this is the story of the plague that came upon Israel in the matter of the numbering of the nation. And uh, God willing, our studies in essence are going to follow through the Chronicles record. And as we believe... Um, in this chapter, the first of Chronicles chapter 21, we believe is the beginning of that last 12 months of David's life. I want you to notice something interesting about the second of Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. You'll remember how the record says, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. 
And as Christadelphians, as a community, we've been clear on the fact that the Satan of this chapter, in the corresponding parallel reference in the second of Samuel, chapter 24, the Satan is, of course, God himself. That almighty God became an adversary to Israel and as a community we believe and have taught that as part of our explanation of who or what the Satan of the Bible is. But did you notice this? Reading the verse again carefully, 1st of Chronicles 21 and verse 1, I want you to notice whom God came against on this occasion. The record says, and Satan stood up against Israel not the king. Did you notice that? God didn't stand against David, says the record. He stood against Israel. And you see, what's going to be unfolded in this particular chapter is that the primary purpose of this episode is for the humbling and the education of Israel, not the king. In fact, the circumstances that brought the plague upon the people, I think, already existed in the nation before David even began to number them. But the problem of this chapter will not be the king's sin, but the people's. All David was going to provide was the catalyst by which the sin of the people would be made manifest and known. Or, yes, Almighty God was going to stand against Israel on this occasion. And in this, uh, in this chapter, as we see David in his oldness of age, we're going to see how the old man became the sin bearer of his people in type. Well, the record says in chapter 21 and verse 1 that, that David numbered Israel. Now we need to understand that there was nothing intrinsically wrong with numbering the people of Israel. We're told in Numbers chapter 1 that it was correct and appropriate to number the people to assess military strength. We're told in Numbers 26 that there was a numbering of the nation to determine the portions of the tribes and allotting the land. We're told in Numbers chapter 3 that there was a numbering for the organization of the Levites. There was nothing wrong in the matter of actually numbering Israel itself. So the question is, of course, why do you think David was numbering Israel on the occasion of the first of Chronicles chapter 21? Well, let me tell you what I believe he was doing. He's an old man, you see. I don't think he was concerned about further invasion. I don't think he was concerned about the possibility of a division or revolt within the land. I don't think he was concerned about the military strength of the army. I think David as an old man had already gone in his mind to the things that were dearest to him and most important in his life. And I think the, the thing that was of greatest importance in his life at this time in the words of a psalm was the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And in David's oldness of age, all he wanted to do was to organize the nation in the matter of the things of spiritual worship that would take place around the house of God, and he wanted to have that done before he died. Now let me show you why I believe that to have been the reason for David's numbering on this occasion in the first of Chronicles 21. You see how the record unfolds subsequently. Come to chapter 22. In the first of Chronicles chapter 22, it's going to say this in verse 2. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land, and he set masons to hew wrought stones to build, to build, to build the house of God. 
And he didn't just gather the strangers, first of Chronicles 22 verse 2, he numbered them says the second of Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 17. He numbered the strangers to assess the manpower that was available for the temple construction. If you come to the first of Chronicles 23, one chapter later, we're told this in verse 24. It says in verse 24, these were the sons of Levi after the house of their fathers, even the chief of their fathers, as they were counted by number of names, by their poles that did the work for the service of the house of the Lord from the age of 20 years and upwards. And if we were to ask, brothers and sisters, well, who numbered the names of verse 24? The answer is, verse 27, by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered. So he numbered the Levites, says chapter 23, for the service of the house of God. In chapter 25 and verse 1, the record says, moreover David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun who should prophesy with harps and psalteries and with cymbals and the number of the workmen according to their service was and verse 7 says so the number of them with their brethren that were instructed in the songs of the Lord so David numbered the singers, says the first of Chronicles 25, verse 1. He numbered the singers to set them in their courses in the house of God. In the first of Chronicles chapter 27 and verse 1, the record says, Now the children of Israel, after their number, to wit the chief fathers and captains of thousands and hundreds, and their officers that served the king. So 1 Chronicles 27 verse 1 says that David numbered the captains and officers that the organization of the kingdom might be administered properly after his death. And in fact, if you come to chapter 27 and verses 23 to 24, the record says this, verse 23, But David took not the number of them from twenty years old and under, because Yahweh had said that he would increase Israel like to the stars of heaven. And I think that this very reference to David's census in the midst of all his numbering tells us why he was doing all this. Why did he number Israel in chapter 21? And the answer is for the same reason as chapter 22 and 23 and 24 and 25 and 27. He was numbering the nation for the proper organization of the spiritual objectives of the house of God and he wanted it done, if at all possible, before he died. He wanted to know the tally of those that were capable for the service of the administration. And so you notice what the record says in chapter 27 verse 23, that he deliberately did not count those who were under the age of 20 because he felt it irreverent to count what God himself had promised should be countless. No, he just numbered the ones that were able to be involved in the work of the house of God in one way or another. And you see what verse 24 says, 1 Chronicles 27, verse 24. Joab the son of Zeruiah began to number, but he finished not because there fell wrath for it against, not David, 
No, against Israel, says the record. Neither was the number put in the account of the Chronicles of King David. So coming back to the first of Chronicles chapter 21, I believe that David's motives on this occasion were pure and excellent in the matter of the numbering of the nation for the service of the house of God. But whilst the king's objectives were pure, the nation's weren't. And verse 3 of First of Chronicles 21 says, And Joab answered, Yahweh make his people an hundred times so many more as they be, but my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Do you know, brothers and sisters, Joab's comments were not prompted, I believe, by any spiritual concern. There was treachery afoot in the nation at this very moment of time. Why, the revolt of Adonijah was soon to manifest itself and Joab was deeply involved in that very thing. Better that David not know the exact state of the nation at the moment. It might have been that Joab misunderstood David's intention and he thought he merely wanted a tally of the fighting men. That's certainly what he brings back as the record's going to tell us in verse 5. But it's not what David asked for. In the parallel record in the 2nd of Samuel 24 and verse 2, David expressly asked that they go and number all the people and bring the tally of all the people back to him. On the other hand, if Joab did know David's true motive, then he probably also knew that the heart of the nation was not with their king. Israel had no interest or desire to devote their resources to the building of a house for God. And Joab, ever the pragmatic realist, sought to dissuade David from his commitment to a cause that he knew the nation did not share. But David was resolute, says verse 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and wherefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And you see, I think that David had another reason. If you come to the book of Exodus in chapter 30, I think in addition to numbering those in the nation for the purposes of the house of God, David had another reason for asking for this numbering. You see what it says in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 12. Exodus 30 says, verse 12, maybe verse 11 for connection. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then they shall give every man a ransom for his soul. And that ransom, says verse 13, was a half shekel of the sanctuary. And verse 15 says, the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. No, each person numbered must give half a shekel. And for what purpose was the half shekel given or devoted? And the answer says in verse 16, thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. So every time Israel was numbered, they all had to pay half a shekel, and that half shekel was devoted to the matters of the tabernacle. And I think that David saw a practical benefit in swelling the funds for the building of a house for God, that in numbering the nation, they would also give their half shekel for the sanctuary to be built. 
At least that was his intention. But as the story unfolded, David would find that the spirit of his people were not with him. And so coming back to the first of Chronicles, chapter 21, the record says in verse 5 that Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. Verse 6 says, and strangely so, that funnily enough, in the, in the census that Joab took, for some reason Levi and Benjamin were not there. They were omitted from the tally. I think we know why Levi was omitted, because, well, they were, they, were, they were left out on the basis of the precedent of Numbers chapter 1, which said that Levi had no inheritance amongst the tribes, and so they weren't counted on an earlier census, Numbers 1, verses 47 to 50. Perhaps Joab omitted them for the same reason here, and certainly David is going to number them separately himself in chapter 23. But why did he omit Benjamin, do you think, brothers and sisters, did Joab in his census? Ah, well, that's a question that unfortunately we haven't got time to answer today. But God willing, we shall find the reason by and by as our studies unfold on the morrow. So do you know what the result of this census was? There was an imperfect tally taken by a commander who wished to frustrate its purpose and counted among a people who did not enter into its spirit or share its objective. And what David had not realized, brothers and sisters, is the heart of his people was not with him in this matter. And verse 7 says, and read it carefully, and God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel, not the king, Israel. Where would be the justice, brothers and sisters, in God smiting 70,000 people for something that the king had sinned concerning? Or no, the judgment in this chapter is going to fall fairly and squarely upon those with whom the fault lay. And the fault was not with the king, brothers and sisters, but with the people of the king who did not share his spirit of dedication to the truth. And David said, verse 8, he said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. I think, you see, before the judgment fell, that David already had a premonition of woe. He felt a sense of guilt in the matter. Isn't that typical of David's spirit? It wasn't his fault, brothers and sisters, but he was prepared to take the blame, nevertheless, on behalf of his people. It's the spirit of an old man who knew only too well the weakness of sin in his own life and who readily assumed responsibility for the offence. I'm the shepherd, he says, it's all my fault. I, I shouldn't have done this, he says in his prayer to God. But it wasn't David's fault, was it really? The main fault didn't lie with the king. And I'll tell you why we know that. Because you see what the record goes on to say. Verse 9 says that Gad, the king's seer, came to speak to him the words of God and said, verse 10, Thus saith Yahweh, I offer thee three things. Choose one of them that I, may, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith Yahweh, choose thee either 
three years famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes while that the sword of thine enemies overtake thee or else three days the sword of Yahweh even the pestilence in the land and the angel of Yahweh destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me do you notice that all the judgments offered brothers and sisters are national judgments not individual either three years famine for the nation or three months before their enemies for the nation or a pestilence through all the coasts of Israel it's not an individual judgment against an individual man their national judgments for a national sin for Yahweh was displeased with Israel on this occasion if there was a sin on David's part and I think there was perhaps in a sense brothers and sisters the only sin that David had committed in this matter was this verse 30 right at the end of this story verse 30 David could not go to the tabernacle to inquire of God ah, you see that's the one thing he hadn't done before this matter of the numbering he, he had not inquired of God before proceeding and of course he'd done this on an earlier occasion remember when he wanted to bring the ark to Zion he began before he inquired of God says the record in the first of Chronicles 15 and verse 13 and again now in his eagerness to further the divine purpose he began before he asked God and if that was a sin then David had committed that but naught else had the king done on this occasion let me just finalize that for you by um, coming to the first of Kings chapter 15 hold your hand in Chronicles and come back to the first of Kings chapter 15 because here is the divine summary upon the life of David first of Kings 15 verses 4 and 5 the record says this and nevertheless for David's sake did Yahweh his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did that which was right in the eyes of Yahweh and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite there is nothing laid to the charge of David in the summary of his life is there brothers and sisters concerning the numbering of Israel oh no this wasn't David's sin on this occasion twas the people's and you see what happens back in the first of Chronicles chapter 21 and uh, reading from verse 14 because this is what the record says verse 13 perhaps before we move on David said unto Gad I am in a great strait let me fall now into the hand of the Lord for very greater his mercies but let me not fall into the hand of man it's interesting brothers and sisters I, I sort of thought about these plagues and I think there's something interesting about what David decided see if if the matter of a famine had come in the land 
Would David personally have been affected by a famine, do you think? He in the royal palace, with charge of the royal orchards and the royal herds. Do you think David in the palace would have suffered from a famine that came upon the people? Or even if they had had three months before their enemies, why David had already retired from the field of battle by this time, being too old because of the fading of his powers. We're told that in the book of Samuel. He'd already left the army. He was fighting no longer. Do you think the king in his palace would have been in danger from the sword of the enemies? But what if he chose the plague? Ah, the plague could reach out and touch anybody, couldn't it? Even the king. And the choice that David makes in falling into the hands of God, he says, I choose the plague, if it be me, almighty God, then might the pestilence touch me also. And he casts his lot with his people as their sin bearer. He shares with them in the calamity. And verse 14 says, first of Chronicles 21, so Yahweh sent pestilence upon Israel and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. And the parallel record says from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Do you know that 70 is the number of the Gentiles? You see, these weren't Israelites in faith. They were behaving like Gentiles. They hadn't shown the spirit of Israelitish faith. They hadn't responded to the matters of giving generously for the work of the sanctuary. And I believe, by the way, that the 70,000 that fell in verse 14 fell in sequence. I think the angel of God began where the tally had begun. And I think the angel of God traveled through the land to every place where the census had come. City by city, town by town, village by village, tribe by tribe, the angel traveled on the same journey and the 70,000 that fell were selected by the angel one by one, expressly, deliberately, individually. And I think in the exquisite providence of God, the 70,000 that fell were no doubt, every one of them, those who had not paid the shekel of the sanctuary, the half shekel, and not entered into the spirit of the king on this occasion. Oh yes, I think the judgment fell in the right place on every man or woman that fell. And by the time the journey of that angel had traveled thus far, David knew that it would end in Jerusalem where the tally had finally come. And that's why verse 15 says that God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And the, the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And verse 15 becomes like a summary of what's going to happen. And then from verse 16 onwards, we're going to have the expanded story of how that all occurred. And it says this, verse 16, David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders of Israel who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. I think the king was in sackcloth before the angel came to the city. He knew it was on its way. He'd heard the reports of death in the land. And by the time the angel came, 
the king was on his face in prayer. And this is what he said, verse 17. David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Yahweh my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people that they should be plagued. It's all my fault, says the king. I accept the blame. I'm the shepherd. These are but the sheep. Do you know when he says that, brothers and sisters, I think he's referring back to Exodus chapter 30. Now, just hold your hand in the first of Chronicles 21 and come back to Exodus chapter 30 because you see what it says in the matter of the numbering of the nation. There's just one little phrase that I think connects with David's language here. I've sinned, but these sheep, what have they done? Do you notice how that in Exodus chapter 30, in the matter of numbering Israel, the record says this, verse, um, verse 13, it says, And this they shall give every one that passeth among them. And again, verse 14, every one that passeth among them. Now, you see that word passeth among them. It's a word that means, well, it's, it, the, the Hebrew word is quite wide in its application, but one of the ways in which it's used is of the flock of sheep being tallied under the rod of the shepherd who counts them. It's used that way in Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 37, in Leviticus chapter 27 verse 32, in Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 13, the flock of sheep under the rod of the shepherd who counts them, those that pass by one by one. And so when David says, these sheep, what have they done? It's all my fault in, in First of Chronicles 20. Don't lose Exodus, by the way. In effect, he says, well, I counted them, it's me to blame. But it wasn't really David to blame, was it? And did you notice what Exodus said in chapter 30, brothers and sisters, in verse 12, just reading again a little more carefully? When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul. They all had an individual responsibility. The king shouldn't pay. It was the people's responsibility. And look what happens if they didn't. They will give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest. And in the exquisite providence of God, brothers and sisters, in the first of Chronicles chapter 21, the divine judgment that fell upon the nation was why the plague promised. In Exodus chapter 30 and verse 12, because each man and each woman in Israel had not lived up to their individual responsibility to pay the half shekel as the law bid them to do. And the plague fell, and rightly so. But on the people, not the king. So when David says in the first of Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 17, it is I that have sinned, but as for these sheep, what have they done? What have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on thy father's house, but not on thy people. Can you hear the echo in that verse, brothers and sisters, of another man in another place at another time that said, Father, Forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. Or yes, I think the spirit of David here is the spirit of Christ, you see, that becomes the sin bearer for his people. And just as David was to become the sin bearer, so he was to become the saviour and the deliverer of his people on this occasion as the record is going to unfold. And so he's told to go to the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, as the record tells us. We're told in the first of Chronicles 21 and verse 22, David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein unto Yahweh. And again in verse, uh, in verse 25, so David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold. Mind you, that wasn't before Ornan said this in verse 23. Ornan said unto David, take it to thee, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee not only the place, but the oxen also for burnt offering, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meal offering. I give it all, says Ornan. And here, brothers and sisters, was a Gentile who gave generously for the work of the truth the very spirit that Israel had failed to show on this occasion. The nation would not respond to the request of the king, he was a Gentile that put them all to shame in terms of the generous spirit that he would show for the work of the truth. And David said, no, I will pay. And he gave him 600 shekels of gold by weight, says verse 25, for the place. Oh, do you notice that, by the way? The place. He paid for the place. And again, verse 22, grant me the place. Do you know, I think that's an allusion and a very clear one to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 12. Now, we don't really have time to look at this, but, well, let's just do it anyway. De Deuteronomy chapter 12, but just very briefly. We can't savour the fullness of the passage, but did you notice this in Deuteronomy chapter 12? You see, here's a revelation being given to David, even in the midst of the calamity of the moment. It says, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, that when they were to come into the land... It says, unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. Verse 13, take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which Yahweh shall choose in one of thy tribes. There thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings. And David has now been shown by revelation that the place of Deuteronomy chapter 12, where the habitation of God shall be, is none other than Mount Moriah, where the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite has been. And it's been revealed to David on the occasion of this national calamity where the place of God's house and altar shall be. And coming back to Chronicles, the record says... In verse 26, David built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord and he answered them from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And then it says that, um, that God commanded the angel and he put up his sword again into his sheath. You know that we're told in the Samuel record in the 2nd of Samuel 24 and verse 25 that the pestilence fell from the morning until the time appointed. 
And I think that that time appointed, as best as we can ascertain, was the time of the evening sacrifice. And it is my personal belief, brothers and sisters, that because of the prayers of the king, although the pestilence was to fall for three days, that it ceased at the end of the very first day because of the intercession of the king on behalf of his people. It began in the morning, but by night time it had stopped. And although there was weeping for that period of time, by the next morning it was clear to all Israel that the plague had been stayed and the nation had been saved. And Yahweh in his mercy had shortened the judgment and asked the angel to cease. It is enough. The prayers of the king had saved his people. Now, do you know that in the course of these studies, brothers and sisters, one of the things that we're going to do is to try and enter into the very spirit and mind of David himself. And how we're going to do that is we're going to try and find the psalms that David composed at this time. And each of our studies, we're going to discover a psalm that I believe David wrote at this precise moment of time as a revelation of his mind. And I think David wrote a psalm just at the moment of the first of Chronicles 21. Would you like to see that then? Well, yes, of course we would. <laughs> so hold your hand in the first of Chronicles 21 and come to the 30th psalm. Because I think this is the moment when David composed this particular psalm to the Father. Now do you see what it says in Psalm 30 at the heading of the psalm? Psalm 30 says, A psalm and song at the dedication of the house of David. The New American Standard Bible alters the heading slightly and I think correctly when it says this. A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house. Full stop. And then it says, of David. Meaning that the psalm is of David, but not the house. It's not the house of David that's being dedicated on this occasion. It's the dedication of God's house. And it's David's psalm concerning the dedication of that house. Do you know the word dedication in the heading of Psalm 30 is the, is the Hebrew word Hanukkah. You've probably heard that word, Hanukkah. And um, it means literally to consecrate by the offering of dedicatory sacrifices. We're told, for example, in Numbers 7, verses 87 to 88, that the altar of Moses was dedicated Hanukkah by the offering of sacrifices. We're told in the second of Chronicles, chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, that the house of Solomon was dedicated Hanukkah by the offering of sacrifices. We're told in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 and verse 43, that the wall of Nehemiah was dedicated, Hanukkah, by sacrifices. And now we have a psalm at the Hanukkah of the house of God. But those sacrifices, aren't they what David offers in the first of Chronicles chapter 21? Read again, verse 26. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called upon God. Verse 28, at that time when David saw that Yahweh had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. And those sacrifices were the offerings of dedication. And what was he dedicating, brothers and sisters? 
Just the altar, you think? Or more than the altar. This was the place of God's habitation of Deuteronomy chapter 12. And do you see what the first of Chronicles 22 and verse 1 says? Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. And this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And although that house was never built in David's lifetime, David had been revealed where the house should be and had dedicated that house with the sacrifices of First of Chronicles chapter 21. Oh yes, I think this psalm was written at the moment of the dedication of the First of Chronicles chapter 21. When the place on Mount Moriah was sanctified by David's offerings. Well, here's a break up to the psalm. Don't lose Chronicles, but do keep. Psalm 30. And the break up to the psalm is as follows. Verses 1 to 3, thanksgiving for deliverance. Thanksgiving for deliverance. Now, why do you think, brothers and sisters, in a psalm commemorating the dedication of God's house, would David need to offer thanks for deliverance unless the nation had at that very time experienced a calamity for which deliverance was necessary? And yet that's the theme of the psalm. And then verses 4 and 5, joy in forgiveness. Verses 4 and 5, joy in forgiveness, which was the very experience of the nation after the prayers of the king. Verses 6 to 10 of the psalm, supplication for help. Supplication for help, verses 6 to 10. And finally, verses 11 and 12, 11 to 12, gladness in praise gladness and praise. You know what the psalm's all about, brothers and sisters? It's the bittersweet mixture of two things. David's awe and amazement at the revelation of the place of God's house and the grief and anguish that accompanied that revelation since it followed on the calamity of the death of so many people in the nation. All those bittersweet emotions woven together in Psalm 30 at the dedication of the house of God. Now, just let me show you the psalm in the chapter. So you see how First of Chronicles 21 says in verse 16 at the, end of the, at the end of the verse, then David and the elders of Israel who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon faces. And so they were until the plague was stayed. But then that would be Psalm 30 in verse 11, wouldn't it? Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. And when David offered the offerings of the first of Chronicles 21 and verse 26, and we're told that God answered and spoke to his angel and cut short the calamity, well, isn't that the words of Psalm 30 and verse 5? For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favour is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And on the next morning, on the second morning, when the plague ought to have still been there, the nation awoke to find that the plague was ended and over, and joy had come, despite the weeping of the day before and of the night that followed. 
Oh yes, I think this is the very psalm of the deliverance of the nation after this dreadful calamity. And you see what verse 4 says of Psalm 30. Sing unto Yahweh, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. The margin says, give thanks at the memorial of his holiness. And do you know that Exodus chapter 30 and verse 16 says that that half shekel that was paid was to be offered as a memorial before God. Do you know the nation would never forget again the memorial of God's holy requirements after the calamity of this occasion had come upon them. And so when Psalm 30 verse 8 says, I cried to thee, O Yahweh, and unto Yahweh I made supplication, David's cry was not just for himself, brothers and sisters, but for the nation who were in such desperate trouble at that time. Yes, he prayed on behalf of all of them. This is the bittersweet story of Psalm 30. When so many in the nation lost their lives, and yet at the very same time to David was given the revelation of the place of God's house where forgiveness would finally be found for all people. And Psalm 30 verse, verse 2 says, O Yahweh my God, I cried unto thee and thou hast healed me. O Yahweh, thou hast brought up my soul from, from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. And of course, we know, do we not, brothers and sisters, in a plague of the first of Chronicles chapter 21, that the king was spared, was he not? 70,000 perished of Israel, but not the king. It didn't touch the king. And yet the words of Psalm 30 and verse 2 and verse 3 imply that in some way the king himself experienced well, thou hast healed me, says the record. Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive. There's something very personal about the words of David on the occasion of this psalm. And I think that's true. I think that what actually happened, brothers and sisters, that although the king's life was spared, I think that David himself was afflicted in this calamity so profoundly that he was brought to the very dust of death himself. So how did that happen then, brothers and sisters? Well, that, God willing, is our study tomorrow.